So to avoid confusion for the duration of the show, Glenn's going to call me Kevin. Yeah, and, and I'm going to call you Evan. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. And welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we have a few loose ends to tie up. I am the eponymous Glenn Butler, and I have an odd craving for the blood of a live Kolar beast, because we are back in the Star Trek film vault to talk about Star Trek Insurrection. With me, as always, is my brother, Mr. Scott Butler, who never fails to insurrect. Scott, this will be our 10th Star Trek podcast, and we have many more planned. How many podcasts does it take before it becomes wrong? Apparently ten. Yeah, exactly. We'll be getting into that. There might be a small problem. I watched Alien Resurrection. Did we get our signals crossed? Uh, You know, I think we can still talk about it and it'll be just as applicable. Okay. Now this is a very special occasion. Because our guest this week is one of the big dogs of our podcast network. One of the hosts of the Mothership, Place to Be podcast, and a host of the Sports Evolution mega show, Mr. Scott Kerskolo. Scott, have you noticed how your boobs have started to firm up? Not that we care about such things in this day and age. (laughs) Well, speaking... (laughs) Well, thank you, uh, Butler's brother. Greatly appreciate being on. And and now I'm confused. I thought we were going to talk about matches with General Rection. Damn! Wrong podcast. Anyway, it's great to be on uh, with you guys. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure. I have a glork on my face. Is that what it was? Glork? Oh, you're, deal- you're dealing with a gorch? A gorch. That's it. A gorch. <laughs> um, it is a pleasure to be on with you guys. Uh, it's, uh, this is one of those mysterious podcasts that you see in, in passing and you go, hey, I know those guys, I think. And then finally when you enter the vortex or you enter V'ger you guys are V'ger mysterious yet all knowing yes you've come within our cloud yes <laughs> uh, it's great to be with you guys tonight great to be with you okay yeah. I've heard a few fat jokes in my time but no one's claimed I'm 82 AUs in diameter <laughs> <laughs> your gut flora are 10 miles tall oh <laughs> uh, wow so. Now, now, Scotty C., you mm-hmm. are putting us in the unique position of having a guest on our show who's seen more Star Trek than we have. Can you just give like a quick summary of like where are you coming from on Star Trek, and how does that bring you to Insurrection today? Well, I grew up, obviously, as if everyone listens to all of our podcasts here on the Place Be Nation, uh, Place Be Nation podcast network, I am slightly older than, than most of the hosts and guests. So, Star Trek The Motion Picture came out in 1979, I was six. And I remember, had it been 1980 or 81, I got 
amongst my many Christmas gifts, my big Christmas gift in 1981 was my Millennium Falcon, which is still to this day the greatest Christmas gift ever in the history of the universe. But I got a bunch of action figures. And among my Star Wars guys, I got two Star Trek figures. I got Kirk and Spock in their Star Trek The Motion Picture garb. So it was the gray with the white front and the gray with the gray front that Spock had. So I was always fascinated with Star Trek, but back then there was this weird divide. You were either Star Wars or you were Star Trek. You weren't allowed to be both. So I was Star Wars. I didn't hate Star Trek. I just liked Star Wars more. Then as the 80s progressed into the 90s, I saw all the movies. Big Kirk fan. My dad watched Next Gen. I was not a Picard fan because, you know, he just wasn't James Tiberius Kirk. He just wasn't. But then I didn't get into the shows throughout the 90s and the 2000s. And then when the great era of streaming services began, Netflix, Hulu, etc., I decided, you know what? If I'm going to be a sci-fi junkie, I need to be a true, completist sci-fi junkie. So a couple years ago, I pretty much started with the first episode of Star Trek, the original series. I don't know if it was The Cage or Where No Man Has Gone, but I don't remember which one. I don't know if I watched the faux pilot or the actual pilot first. I think the faux pilot. And I just mowed my way over the next two and a half years, and I watched the original series, the animated series, which is so awesome. Only because, like, the they were all their, their voices on these, you know, uh, Hanna, not Hanna-Barbera, whatever the... Filmation. Filmation, yeah. Filmation, thank you. All the cool-looking guys. And they still had a lot of the same people running the show. I mean, Dorothy Fontana was writing some of those episodes. Yeah, exactly. They had a lot of the writers from the regular... The, I don't, the only thing they couldn't get, they couldn't get Jerry Goldsmith's theme. So they had to make up like a fakey theme, which wasn't bad. And then I watched Next Gen. I watched Deep Space Nine, which is probably my favorite of all the shows. I watched Voyager and I watched Enterprise. And my friend uh, Tech, who's a big Trek junkie, uh, said to me, you're probably going to hear a lot of crap from people who say that Enterprise stunk. And I have to say, I, I for the four seasons it was on, it was really good. I wish they had a fifth season. You know, and, and my friend would always tell me about everybody's favorite actors like Jeffrey Combs and J.G. Hertzler, you know, and those kind of guys who played like a thousand characters. And it was weird when I watched the finale of the fourth season, which ended up being the series finale of Enterprise. I was actually like, I can't believe I just did this. It was amazing. I can't believe I just watched every single episode of every Star Wars show that was ever on. And then I said, well, of course, Star Wars Beyond, the movie is coming out, what, in like two months. So I said, well, I, I got to catch up to the movies now. So my friend Tech gave me all of the movies on all of his two disc DVDs because I wanted to watch the extras, too. So I watched uh, starting last week. I've powered my way through all six Kirks and Generations and First Contact. And then last night, because I wanted to keep it fresh in my mind for this evening's affair, I watched Insurrection last night. And then I'll watch Nemesis and then I'll watch the two newbies before July I think it's 22nd, I think, right? 22nd or 15th. I think it's 22nd. 22nd. That, 22nd that Beyond comes out. And now I feel like a, a, a true sci-fi completist. I love sci-fi books. You know, I've always been a fan of science fiction and, the, and space shows and things like that. I also watched the entire show um, Stargate. I watched all, not uh, Atlantis, the regular Stargate. I watched all of Stargate, including the movie. So I'm, I actually, I'm kind of proud of myself because I feel like, you know, I used to be kind of on the outs of, of sci-fi hardcore fans because I didn't watch any of the Star Trek shows. And then I literally just mowed my way through all of them in probably two and a half years. So this, to me, is a coronation that I am qualified enough. I didn't think I was overqualified. 
qualified enough to be with you guys tonight that I wouldn't sound like a complete, you know, where's Han Solo? Isn't he in the Enterprise? No, I wasn't going to be one of those guys. <laughs> um, you know, Chewbacca, there's no Wookiees on uh, Deep Space Nine. Ferengis, don't they eat? Don't Wookiees eat Ferengis? Oh, wrong thing. You know, I can't, I, I'm not going to cross-pollinate. Wookiees so would fit right in on DS9. They really would. <laughs> yeah. They really would, you know? Um, so I just mowed my way through them, and I feel like I've gained a new, an appreciation for all the shows, and my friend and I had weird... Um, kind of like sat and said, what would be the perfect bridge of, of an enterprise by using one of every, you know, you have to fill each office with a different person from a different show and what would be the perfect bridge kind of thing. And so it was kind of cool. And, 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 now I, uh, and now I'm here with you guys and I would never be able to talk this much about Star Trek on any of the other shows we do. So uh, it's, it's just, I don't know, I feel uh, a little emboldened that I am, I'm, I've been able to gain the knowledge thanks to Netflix and Hulu, etc., to be able to watch all the shows that I didn't take advantage of when I was younger. So I can't believe that I've actually gone through this much, but yeah, that's a lot of material to mow through. Yeah, yeah it was. So I'm ready guys. I am ready. I know you and I, Glenn had talked at, at times. Like when I said, Oh, I'm watching enterprise with season. And you were like, oh, I don't think I watched enterprise. I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, a lot of it. No, I, I watched most of the first season and then I kind of fell off. And I watched it sporadically for the next couple of years and came back for the fourth season, right. which was a little more watchable to my tastes, but only yes. because they like went completely into continuity porn, fan service-y stuff. Oh, that's exactly what they did. Season four, they because I think they were told there was no season five, so let's fill all the gaps and make everything really cool so they'll all go, ooh. That's exactly what they did. Season three with the Zindi, though, is definitely watchable. Highly recommend. See, if you're not going to watch any other season of of Enterprise, season three is worth watching. It's big time. It's like the DS9 War with the Dominion squeezed into one season. Pretty close. That's just my opinion of it. But but I'm ready, guys. I am ready to insurrect, if that is even a verb. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so for insurrection, we are at the end of 1998, mm-hmm. at a time when the Star Trek franchise wasn't really at as high a place as it was when we checked in in 1996. They were doing the 30th anniversary. In 1994, we checked in for Generations. It was a big year for the franchise. By 1998, DS9 was in its final season. Voyager was in the midst of its fourth season by the time this movie came out. Do you feel at all, Scotty B, like the Star Trek franchise was starting to get a little tired with the two shows and the movie series kind of all going on at the same time? I don't know about tired. Maybe they were starting to get slightly complacent. Because the franchise wasn't on this huge plateau that it had been on before, it did sort of feel like it had been coasting. You know, they're just churning out a TNG movie every couple years. The two series are just going on on their own. There's not a whole lot of development of new ideas going on. The two shows were so different, their productions were so separate, despite supposedly having Rick Berman over all of it. There's always debates over exactly how much influence Rick Berman had over DS9. There's always debates between fans of DS9 and fans of Voyager of which one was better and which one betrayed the ideals of Star Trek or something like that. Yeah, there are always that sort of debate, which, like the Star Wars versus Star Trek stuff that Scott was mentioning earlier, I think... As you get older, hopefully you realize a little more that it's okay to like two things. Yeah, exactly. 
So, I mean, the franchise wasn't on the high it had been on in 94, 96. It was kind of coasting a little bit, but I don't think it was on the way down noticeably. I mean, obviously it was on the way down given the later evidence that by 02 and 05 it had basically petered out and went into a interregnum period, but it wasn't like it fell off a cliff in 1997. No, no, it was it was still going, and I think that sense of complacency is a very good phrase to use for it, because usually the obvious first thing that you talk about with any of these movies is, what is this movie doing that's new or different? Either pushing the franchise, or pushing one of the stars, or pushing the characters, and that doesn't quite seem to apply this time. The sense of this movie that I think most people have, to the extent that people have a sense of this movie, it, it's under the radar a little bit, is that it's a little bland, and it's not doing that much that's interesting. Uh, Scotty C., would you agree with that? Well, you know what's funny? Watching it again last night, when you compare the Kirk movies to the Picard movies, the Kirk movies felt like movies. Other than First Contact, the Picard movies felt like long episodes. Like, you could take Generations, cut a lot of fluff out, and probably make it a 46-minute episode of Next Gen with special guest star William Shatner. First Contact, I don't think you can. It's too big a deal. Even this movie, and I have to watch Nemesis again because it's a little cloudy, but I do think that with two shows going on, and at the time, DS9, which is in season, I think it was in season five at that point, is in the middle of this huge, you know, the huge war with the Dominion. So that's a big story plot. And Voyager was kind of plodding along in, I think it was season three. I think people were probably pining for the next-gen crew. But I feel like those movies, at least this one, and perhaps Generations, I don't know about First Contact, felt like hour and 35-minute episodes. Almost like a two-parter that would go over two weeks. Like you could split it in half and it could be part one and part two. I think that feeling sort of comes from what Glenn was talking about, where they're not really pushing forward with anything. Mm -hmm. All of the original series movies really pushed forward into new territory. They did things that would not have happened on the show. They had a whole new ship and everyone was in a new position. They killed Spock. They resurrected Spock. They blew up the ship. They went traveling in time in a Klingon bird of prey. They were doing these things that would not have happened in a 42-minute episode. Mm -hmm. Generations, to an extent, although I think Generations, is it sort of straddles the line, but these Next Generation movies weren't really doing really bold things like that. I mean, Generations had its thing with killing off Kirk and, again, blowing up the ship, and that was definitely moving everyone forward in a way that didn't happen on the TV series. First Contact was it did have that big epic movie feel, but Insurrection is definitely a story that could have been told on the TV series. Nothing really changes by the end, as much as they term it an insurrection or a rebellion, and oh, they're going against Starfleet or whatever. If this was a TV episode, you would say, well, they hit the reset button at the end and everything's fine and they're ready to sail off to next week's adventure. Mm -hmm. you, couldn't say, you couldn't say that at the end of any of the original series movies, except possibly Star Trek IV. And I think hitting the reset button after three movies doesn't quite have the same feel as hitting the reset button at the end of every movie. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And there was a sense 
at the time, coming off the heels of First Contact, which was so warmly received and so financially successful, there was a sense that this was just a continuing series. And so it makes enough sense for the next movie to be kind of a continuing adventures of our heroes sort of deal. Because this is supposed to be pumped out every couple of years. You check in with, you know, the people you loved watching on TV eight years ago. Also, I think the Next Generation crew, while clearly the most popular of any of the spin-off series, I don't think they really entered the popular consciousness to anywhere near the extent the original series crew did. I think I would kind of disagree with that. I think when Next Gen was at its popular height around season 4, 5, 6, around the 25th anniversary especially, that they were kind of on equal footing with the original series. I think it's more of the marketing since then and the decline of the next-gen movies in a way that the original series movies didn't decline. People didn't like five, but then they came back with six and everyone loved it again. So that dynamic combined with the marketing over the last 15 plus years combines to form the impression now that the original series is so much more in the popular consciousness because by now it really is i don't know i felt that way even at the time even in the early 90s i mean i was glad to be getting next generation movies because i loved star trek and i'd watch any star trek but even at the time, I knew that there was Star Trek, and then there was Star Trek The Next Generation. The only place where Captain Picard was in the public consciousness to nearly the extent of Captain Kirk was when people were debating Kirk versus Picard. Other than that, there was the original, and everything else was lesser. And I don't mean lesser in terms of quality, I just mean lesser in terms of... I identifiability among people that aren't Trekkies. Like, you could pluck a random person off the street and they'll go see Kirk and Spock in a movie. That random person off the street is a lot less likely to go see Picard and Riker in a movie. Even in 1996-1998. They'll go see, you know, a giant battle with the Borg. That looks interesting. They're interested enough in the general Star Trek milieu to go see that. But just a random Picard and Riker and Data movie that doesn't have that epic feel to it is just not going to attract people the way that Kirk and Spock and McCoy are. Maybe because, tell me if this makes any sense, the Kirk movies had movie people doing it, producing it, writing it, etc. The Picard movies had TV people doing it, Berman, Braga. So I feel like they just took a script of an episode and stretched it another 45 minutes. Whereas the Kirk movies were made by movie people, so they felt like a movie. Whereas Berman and Braga, who were notorious for blowing Enterprise, apparently, because they knew how to write TV, and maybe not necessarily knew how to write movies, scripts and treatments and stuff, made it feel like a long episode because that's all they knew. Well, that's one of the things that we talked about on our Generations and First Contact episodes. Both movies were written by Ron Moore and Brandon Braga Mm -hmm. from the Next Gen writing staff. And the perception is much different going from Generations to First Contact. Generations has that reputation of, oh, it's by all the TV people. First Contact doesn't. Because of a lot of the things they did with the plot and the scale Mm -hmm. of the production and the budget to an extent. And 
One of the things that we were examining a little bit in our first Contact episode was that a lot of that movie scale kind of comes at the expense of things that were more identifiable with Next Gen as a TV show and the identity that that show has, in our memories at least. Mm -hmm. And for Insurrection, they do try to scale that back a little bit. This is written by Michael Piller, who was a producer of Next Gen from Season 3 onward and co-created DS9, wrote the pilot, co-created Voyager... So he's coming from the TV production. He had left Voyager by that point, and I think he was adrift for a little while before he came back to write Insurrection. And so that perception and that reputation kind of comes back for this movie because it doesn't have the perception that First Contact does. When we talked about this very thing, this sort of TV people trying to make a movie and failing to an extent, when we talked about it on the Generations show, and when we talked about it on the First Contact show, I sort of poo-pooed the idea and sort of dismissed it. But honestly, looking at it, looking at a lot of the flaws of Insurrection, I have to admit that there's something there. There's a certain amount of truth there. Because a lot of the flaws you can lay at the feet of Insurrection, and the, the flaws that people lay at the feet of Generations, I have to admit that there's a certain amount of truth to Possibly the problem is that people are too used to making TV and there's just something that feels different. I mean, the only counter-argument I would still make is that before he made Star Trek II, Harv Bennett was mostly a TV person. Right, exactly. I think he was producing, like, the Mod Squad. So there's a certain argument to be made that you only point out that TV people can't make movies when they make bad movies. And when they make good movies like Wrath of Khan and First Contact, that criticism sort of falls away. Yeah, I'm not sure how many feature films Leonard Nimoy directed before he did 3 and 4, for instance. And here again we have Jonathan Frakes, who learned to direct by going to Paramount University on the set of Next Gen, who is now being plugged in to make these movies. I also think, and to get back what you were saying, Scott, about big things happening in the Kirk movies, because... The blowing up of Enterprise when the disc blew up at the end of, I guess it was episode three, that was an iconic moment because you never would have thought, you know, when you're watching it in 1980, well, I think, let's see, 1984, I think that one came out. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're thinking, that's my Enterprise. I mean, Kirk not being on it and somebody else flying it or it being retired is one thing, but actually seeing it destroyed is like, what the frig? And then when they did it in First Contact, or they did it in um Generations, in, uh, Generations you're like, oh, well, we already saw this. And the show's over. If they had done that, let's say Generations came out in 1991, which would have been probably logistically ridiculous, but <laughs> bear with me. <laughs> um, say season four ends, Generations comes out in August, season five starts in, say, late September, early October, and in Generations, they blow up the Enterprise. Then you're like, well, what the hell are they going to do in season five? That would have been interesting. But with the show already over and they, you know, they dislocate the dish and then they smack it into the planet or whatever. You're like, oh, well, whatever. There's, you know, there's a movie coming out. They'll figure out something. The bloom already fell off the rose. Yeah, so I agree. Your point is, is, is perfect 100% that the Kirk movies did all the cool stuff in the movies that the fans would have been like, whoa. And there was nothing more to do in the Picard movies. Now, let me ask you this. And for both of you guys. Obviously, the big deal in episode six was to use a wrestling term, Glenn would, wouldn't appreciate this. The Klingons were turning babyface, which is a big deal if you've been a 
Trek fan even back to the 60s. Yeah, they they, they had been big-time heels, and then a lot of them were kind of tweeners. Yeah, now you're trying to turn the whole race babyface. That's a big deal. And then, of course, we survived. You know, they went through with Next Gen, and then obviously DS9. They were pretty much allies, except for that little stretch when they all when Gowron lost his mind or whatever. Now, had during Next Gen, or they did a Next Gen movie where they turned the Borg babyface, which is practically impossible. You really can't. Then maybe the Picard movies would have had that specialness to it. But you couldn't do that. They're Borg. They're not people. You know what I mean? Except for that one little storyline on Voyager where the Borg were going up against those, whatever they're called, 7389 or whatever those bug eight, things eight, were. 8472. 8472. Thank you. Yeah. I knew it was four numbers. Um, and in the end, it turned out that they were the good guys and the Borg were the heels. So that, I, I think, what you were saying, Scott, about the specialness of what goes on in the movies. The old Enterprise was destroyed in three. But then you do it again in Generations. You're like, oh, well. Yeah. show's over anyway. They could just do something new in the next movie. And then the Klingons becoming good guys, you're like, wow, that's crazy. The Romulans were always a bunch of sneaky bastards. They were never going to be good guys. But the Borg, that's never going to happen. They're not re- They're not people. So I, gr- I just wanted to back you. What did you guys think of, of that point? Like, could they have done something? I don't know what they could have done to, to add the shock value. You know what I'm saying? It's, just to back up Scott's point about how the, the Picard movies didn't have that OMG moment. I think you're bringing yeah. up a lot of points that we're going to probably get to more in our next episode because Nemesis is the one where they did bring in more movie people mm-hmm. to write and direct it. They tried to do something really epic and universe-changing. They sort of did begin to turn the Romulans baby face, and it just didn't really work. And like I said, we'll get into that more in the next episode when we talk about that movie. But I think you can draw a certain parallel if you wanted, you know, for a rhetorical point. You can draw a certain parallel between Star Trek Three and Insurrection, where the captain disagrees with the command order, and in Star Trek Three, it's out of personal loyalty to his friend and mm-hmm. fellow officer, and in Insurrection, it's a moral stance that this is wrong and I refuse to support it. And so they both go against the command. They go against their Starfleet hierarchy to do what they think is right. And then just look at the repercussions. In Star Trek Three, they're refugees. They have to blow up their ship. They wind up being just seven of them alone, stranded refugees on Vulcan. And it takes two more movies before you see them back in Starfleet on a starship again. Insurrection, everything is fixed by the end of the movie, and they sail off into the sunset. It's that kind of lack of repercussions that really hurts that kind of epic feel they're going for. At the end of Star Trek Three, you're like, wow, look at what they sacrificed. What's going to happen now? At the end of Insurrection, it's just, okay, everything's tied up with a bow and sail on to next week's adventure. Yeah, there is a lot of information on the development and the writing of Insurrection, probably more than any other Star Trek movie, except perhaps Star Trek V, because William Shatner wrote a bunch of books. But (laughs) Michael Piller, the screenwriter for this movie, wrote a book called Fade In, just about the experience of writing this movie. It wasn't released because, of course, Paramount didn't want that released, But there is a PDF of the manuscript out there. There will be a link in the show notes for this episode. But reading that, 
you can see a lot of the thought behind the story as it came together here. And that OMG moment, Scott, that you mentioned, Pillar meant for the scene where Picard goes to his quarters, takes off his pips one by one and lays them on the table and re removes his uniform and, and turns against his orders and the hierarchy. That's intended to be that OMG moment. The core dynamic of this movie is meant to be Picard disobeying his orders and turning against the Federation because what it's doing is evil. And that, unfortunately, doesn't really come together. Partially because that had been done on the TV show several times. They have to disobey orders. Well, that's this, this that's sort of a basic trope of the hero, is that he has to turn against his commanders because he knows what's right. Yeah, especially since this movie, once again, has the evil Admiral of the Week. That's another reason it doesn't work, because the only representation of the Starfleet that he's turning against is the Evil Admiral of the Week. Yeah, the Evil Admiral of the Week and the Bad Guys of the Week, who have been made up for this week. The Bad Guys of the Week who are allied with the Evil Admiral of the Week, and they're the representative of the Starfleet Command that he's betraying. Yeah. There's also an intention in this movie that's introduced in, in large part by Patrick Stewart, who became an associate producer on this movie after the success of First Contact. He wasn't given full credit for Generations and the amount of money that that made since he was co-starring with William Shatner. But after First Contact, Patrick Stewart got a lot of stroke because a lot of that movie was on his shoulders and it did very, very well. So he gets a producer credit here. He gets a lot of input on the story. He gets the initial treatments and drafts and sends back extensive feedback especially on the character of Picard, who even in the TV show, he wanted to do a little more fighting and to have some more love stories. And so Picard in this movie doesn't have that sort of drive for vengeance that he does in First Contact. He doesn't have self-doubts and grief the way he did in Generations. He's much less haunted is the word that Patrick Stewart used in some of his memos. He didn't want Picard to be haunted. He wanted him to be light and simple and more straightforward. And perhaps See, to the detriment of the movie, that's exactly what we got. Yeah, where you were, you just used the word haunted. I was about to use the word interesting. He doesn't have as interesting a character motivation behind him. How insulting. <laughs> <laughs> He became so plastic. But I think that was always the, the criticism of Picard on the show, uh, besides the fact that he didn't pick up as many cool-looking chicks as Kirk did. But they obviously had to come up with a different type of captain for the series. But that's a great point, Glenn, because generations, he is just haunted by the death of his family. And Picard's fury for the Borg equals Kirk's fury for the Klingons. Uh, similar to Kirk in Six where he goes, let them die. And there was a whole debate on the second disc, well, when I was watching the extras of episodes of episode six, listen to me, here I am morphing my, I knew I was going to do it at least once, morph my wars and my trek. In Star Trek six, there's actually one of the extras, the director, I don't think it was Harv Bennett, I don't know who directed, I'm trying to remember who directed six. Nick Meyer directed six. Nick, Nick Meyer, that's right, Nicholas Meyer. He wanted Kirk to come off as that cold when he tells Spock in the conference room at the beginning of the movie, 
you know, Jim, their race is going to die. And? Whereas Nicholas Meyer wanted to leave it like that, but Shatner apparently wanted it to be afterwards to kind of be like, all right, I, I know, that was dumb. Forget I said that, but you know yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, there's a little hand wave, I think, where yeah, he's cut, like, you know, he like, yeah, he blows it off and everything. But then Nicholas Meyer cut that. Yeah. Because he wanted Kirk to be that angry. Because that gives the character someplace to go by the end of the movie. Precisely. And I think that they emulated that with Patrick Stewart in First Contact by being that much vengeful of the Borg. The difference between Picard with the Borg and Kirk with the Klingons is, as I said earlier, the Borg aren't human. They're Borg. There's no sympathy there. For the Klingons, you could be like, well, yeah, they're a bunch of you know, bloodthirsty nutjobs, but they are a race of people, of, of aliens. They're real organic beings. They might be a bunch of you know, bloodthirsty psychos, but they are a race. The Borg are not a race. They're an army. Well, that's something you know? that they played with a little bit in the TV series with Hugh, and then a little mm -hmm. bit in Voyager, too, when they you know, recruited one. But in First Contact, when they... You know, take a Star Trek movie and make it into an action movie or a monster movie. They do just become the, you know, mindless hordes. Yep. Yeah, whereas Kirk's journey was that he had to get past his prejudice so that he could start regarding the Klingons as people and not just as an implacable foe. Picard has to get past his trauma so that he can effectively deal with the foe. Meanwhile, in Insurrection, because of some of these intentions going into the crafting of the story, Picard doesn't have anything to really overcome except just the enemy that's in front of him. You know, there's someone shooting at him and he has to shoot back. Or, you know, they're going to do this horrible thing to the people on the planet and he has to save the people on the planet. You know, there isn't anything really meaty for his character to delve into. Well, I think I said this on an earlier episode. I may have said it on an earlier episode, but like you said, Patrick Stewart, basically he wanted Picard to be more like Kirk. Yeah, a little bit. Where, yeah. Whereas Picard would solve situations by negotiating and talking the enemy down and finding common ground and trying to avoid bloodshed, Kirk was much more likely to solve a situation with a fist fight. And Patrick Stewart basically wanted Captain Picard to be more the action fist fight captain rather than the talk the enemy down and find common ground captain. And as he gained more influence over the story elements of the movies, you see Picard sort of become more the action fistfight guy. And less of an intellectual, which was where his character really kind of soared on the TV show. You know, he would have sage advice for everyone. He would go through moral conflicts and intellectual conflicts. Whereas, by the time of the movies, there's this growing trend, like you say, Patrick Stewart wanted to go down that path. I think the influence of the studio goes down that path, too, because they love marketing action movies. Well, action movies are very easy to market. And if you look at the previous experience, you look at the way most people didn't like Generations and the way most people did like First Contact, it's very easy to say, okay, make it more action and explosions, that's what people like. And so I you concur. end up going down this path. I concur. There are a few things that I think are interesting about the original concept for this movie. It was originally based much more on Heart of Darkness, where Picard has to go down the river, as it were, to this planet in a region of space that's not 
thoroughly explored, this, this briar patch that people don't go to often, and he has to go find someone who's gone native. Except the twist on that is that, as Michael Piller described it originally as the Heart of Lightness, where Picard fought, goes to find this guy who's gone native, and then Picard kind of goes native because he has to save these people. So in the original drafts, they introduced, you know, Picard's best friend from Starfleet Academy. And they had this whole prologue sequence of them at the Academy with Boothby. That would have been awesome if they got Boothby into this movie. Oh yeah, there were drafts where, you know, in the first draft, Boothby was there, and then they eliminated him in the second draft. You know, Ray Walston lost a job he never knew he had. And, <laughs> then, they, and then they put him back... When they changed their mind about what to do, he, he got in and out of the movie a couple of times without, you know, anyone ever calling his agent. We're, we're thinking about putting you in the movie. But, um, so there's this whole sequence with uh, Picard and his friend at Starfleet Academy and kind of more of an emphasis than there ever had been on the generational divide between the original series and the next generation. There was kind of an implied divide there, saying that in Kirk's time, there was a lot more cowboy diplomacy, as Spock called it in Unification. People solved a lot more of their problems with their phasers and their fists, as was a little more emphasized in the original series. And kind of showing the shift, the generational shift, to next gen. And saying that there was some friction there, and there was a youth movement, there was conflict, and likening that to the sorts of things that Picard has to do later in the movie. All of that got axed, eventually. They cut out this, like, stuffy Starfleet Academy admiral who, because he was going to be a Vulcan, was going to still be in the upper echelons of Starfleet in the current day of the movie, and really be pushing this plan to unseat the Baku and steal their MacGuffin that rejuvenates people. It was a somewhat different MacGuffin, but it was still a MacGuffin that did a lot of the same things. And one of the things that I distinctly remember from the book was Michael Piller saying in a memo, Cast Ian McKellen as that Vulcan Admiral, and I'll give you a finale scene that'll make people stand up in the theater. And just thinking, given their extensive friendship that everyone loves on Twitter now, thinking if they had been able to be in a Star Trek movie together in 1998, how amazing would that have been? You know, they say sometimes Star Trek is just ahead of the curve. Oh, well, you're talking about Star Trek ahead of the curve. How much of this movie is about the evils of drone warfare? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so, all these directions of the story that would have also introduced this whole thread of Picard's life being cluttered, where he has too much to do, and his quarters aren't organized, and lots of things to try to symbolize this, before he goes to the planet and meets his love interest, who convinces him to kind of simplify his life and live in the moment which kind of got into the movie, but didn't entirely get into the movie. All of these sound like at least they had some ideas beyond what we wound up with, but some of these ideas are just so bad. I mean, it sounds like all the worst parts of Avatar. Yeah, yeah. Well, this movie is also susceptible to one big criticism of the story of Insurrection, in that it's the story of, you know, an outsider... Not single-handedly, because Next Gen is an ensemble show, but an outsider coming in to save the bumbling natives. 
You know, the, the natives who can't pick up a phaser to defend themselves because when we pick up a weapon, we become as bad as them. Which, for what it is, is kind of a fair point. But it's still about these outsiders coming in and saving the natives, like Avatar, which is kind of problematic. And not just that, but the whole trope of, oh, my modern life with modern technology is so complicated... I yeah. need to go to talk to the natives on this planet and their simpler, peaceful lives will help me shun the cluttering technology of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's incredibly cliched. I mean, the other problem is really just that nobody has yet figured out a way to write pacifists in a movie without having our daring action hero have to protect the pacifists by breaking every rule the pacifists live their life by. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a big problem when you're making an action movie and you're putting a bunch of pacifists in it. <laughs> 600 of them, according to the story. Yeah, people who've been living on that planet for hundreds of years and still have 600 people, that is some effective, non-technological birth control. Yeah. <laughs> And the women were all hot, too. And Donna Murphy, the actress who played... Um, Anish. Anish was very attractive. And Nothing we care scene, about such things in this day and age. The one thing where she's... <laughs> it looks so dopey. The scene where they're sitting there, they're sitting like on the ledge after they're... You know, when they're all like hiding in the, in the mountains and stuff. And she's sitting there and she's petting his head. And she goes, it's been 300 years since I've seen a bald man. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Nate Picard seemed like he was a hundred. <laughs> it was terrible. It was, it was, that, that was one scene where I literally I felt bad for Patrick Stewart. Oh, you're such a nice little old man. <laughs> it was so bad. I felt bad for him. <laughs> that scene just—I don't think that scene went off as well as uh, as he. And so of course he had to say. Well, he said mentions are being married. And then afterwards he says, uh, you know, I must warn you. I've always been attracted to older women. Ha ha ha. You know, but that whole scene uh, is funny. But I think, you know, it's funny because the. There have been a lot of times in, in the history of these movies where the pacifist thing kind of paints you into a corner where logic almost makes the pacifists, although they're doing their best for their own morals, look naive. Like, for instance, getting back to Star Trek VI when, when Kirk's saying, you know, let them die, you think to yourself, wow, that's really cruel. I mean, just let the Klingon race vanish? And then you think to yourself, well, what have the Klingons done through all of the TV shows and all the movies? Fly around taking things. So if we can get rid of them... Get rid of them. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird situation. And now here you've got these people. Oh, if we take a weapon, we'll be just as bad as they are. All right, then let the drones come down, blow you all up, and take the planet. That's always where the, like, like you said, where there are too many pacifists lead to trope and logic issues. And I think the other reason why they tried to not make this too violent heavy is I think First Contact was a very serious, very heavy movie. Heavy plot-wise, heavy tone-wise, just like Search for Spock was. Then Voyage Home was kind of a light-hearted, giggly, you know, lighter tone movie where the, the original cast was able to kind of be a little humorous. And I think that's where Paramount wanted to go with this one. To make this, not light-hearted, ha-ha, but maybe not make it so deep. Yeah, and, you, and, you, see that, you, know? you see that throughout Pillar's book when he pastes in a lot of the studio memos and the notes they got from upper executives and, at the time, even the CEO of Viacom, owner of the whole conglomerate, was a Star Trek fan and so took particular interest in what the movie division was doing with that. 
which he usually didn't with the movies that Paramount was making as the CEO of the entire corporation. But for Star Trek, he took a special interest. And you see that in a ton of these memos, lighten it up, put in more humor, was the directive over and over again. Which is not an unfair point. I mean, Star Trek movies, to a large extent, have to market to kids as well. I mean, a lot of people get got into the franchise as kids. We all did. It's something they're always putting an eye to. And... I can see how First Contact might have been a little heavy in that context. And so they'd want to pull back a little bit. You got on me last episode when I suggested that if Dax had been piloting the Defiant in First Contact, then she would have had, could have had a line like, you know, hey, Worf, if you order me to engage ramming speed, you're sleeping on the couch for a week. And you got on to me and how old-fashioned and outdated that is. How about Picard's line, how is it you've never been married? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally, totally cliched. I believe what I said in the First Contact episode is that's almost old-fashioned to make it into 90s Star Trek. <laughs> so, th there is that kind of undercurrent running through it, and if you look at some of the gender politics of the next generation, a lot of it is kind of old-fashioned and kind of playing it safe. There's been a, a ton of analysis on that. We, we don't need to get into that right now. But there is that element to it. And there's definitely that element to insurrection as well. As, as far as Anish kind of patting Picard's bald head, I mean, it's okay to have a fetish. I'm not here to judge. <laughs> it's because there are none of them on the planet. So she's, she's like, wow, look at this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Picard that, is exotic and unusual. Exactly. Yes. I mean, if that's really her thing, and it's been three hundred years, you gotta, you know, you got, mm, you got, some, you got the juices flowing. <laughs> can, can we talk about the love triangle between Picard, Anij, and the planet Baku? <laughs> well, at the end, Picard says, "You know, I have three hundred and eighteen. I think it was days of shore leave coming up, and I intend to use them." So he's hardcore. He'll take her on the planet. See, this is the situation where the love triangle should resolve in like a some sort of three-way thing between the both of them and the planet. Polyamory is almost always the solution to love triangles. Let's continue. And yet still, at the end of the movie, he sort of goes off and leaves her and the planet to be together without him. Oh, of course. He says, you know, I have shore leave coming up. I mean, we're not going to do it now, because we've got to go off to our next adventure. Because we're, we're doing our new adventures in the novels and the comic books and the next movie. I was about to say, that also ties into the sort of reset button television episode feel to it, that he meets this woman and has supposedly a romance with her and then leaves at the end of the episode anyway. This isn't something that actually affects his life past the events of this movie. Yeah, also in the way that a lot of the sexual politics and gender politics of 90s era Star Trek works... The love story between them is pretty chaste. They don't mm. even kiss, do they? No, they kissed once and then it got cut out. The kiss is in the... Exactly, Glenn. The kiss is in the deleted scenes and it's in slow motion. So it's very amorous. <laughs> but, they, but they cut it out. Is, um, is it as hot as the kiss between Data and the Borg Queen? <laughs> Alice Krieg, I know, right? There's a whole um, extra on the second disc of Insurrection about the history of hot Star Trek women. Which brings me to, you guys are talking about gender politics in Star Trek. Could you imagine, fathom this, could you imagine if there was a scene in Generations where Kirk meets the uh, crew, like if they keep him alive instead of killing him off, he meets the crew of the Enterprise of the current Enterprise and he looks at Picard and goes, you need a counselor? Wimp. 
And then he looks at uh at Deanna and goes, "Hi, I'm Jim." <laughs> and then he looks at Frix and goes, "Oh, she's yours for now." <laughs> I could just imagine just the chivalrousness of <laughs> of '60s Kirk in '90s uh, on the '90s Enterprise. You know what I'm saying? It's a, I think. I mean, I don't know if that would be funny or if anybody could offend it, but it just I could just imagine them trying to pull off something like that if they did, but. Um, that just shows you that this series was created in 1987, that one of the senior bridge officers is the ship's counselor, and she doesn't actually wear a Starfleet uniform for most of the series. Oh yeah, M- Marina Sirtis has done some great interviews in, in the last few years in particular, talking about how, with the various outfits she had on the show, the amount of intelligence and brains that the writers imbued her character with had an inverse relationship with the amount of cleavage she was showing. Yes. It, it was as if the whole writing room saw her in the cat suits that she wore for most of the series and made her dumber and dumber. And then they gave her a uniform finally in the middle of season six, and suddenly she has ideas and she knows things. <laughs> it is pretty funny. So I agree. The, the use of Troy during the TV show was pretty bad and extremely inconsistent well we've been tracking how they've been using her in these movies yes in generations she crashed the ship in first contact she was drunk and now here in insurrection her boobs are starting to firm up (laughs) yes so this character isn't being used very well in these movies yeah we, we mentioned the one love story there's the kind of stuck in love story of Troy and Riker kind of renewing their romance, which again is vastly oversimplifying something that the length and breadth of the TV show allowed them to do in kind of a more mature way, where they were adults, they were mature adults who were the best of friends and were not in a romantic relationship because, you know, a man and a woman who like each other and are attracted to each other don't always work in a relationship. And that's just kind of how that went. While in the movies, they figure, we need to do something, let's have Troy and Riker start making out. Well, the problem with the movies compared to the TV show is the TV show could do things slowly. And they didn't always do that on Next Generation. Again, the way they do that on TV shows these days is sort of bleeding over into our interpretation. But Yeah, definitely. On TV shows, they could do things slowly. They could build things over time. In movies, you've got one two-hour window, and you've got to do all these action shoot-em-ups, and you've got to do all these fist fights, and you've got to show Picard with his giant fucking phaser rifle so that he can look cool with his giant fucking phaser rifle, and you've got to work in Picard's romance because Patrick Stewart wants there to be a romance, and you've got to work in all these things and this storyline that you want to tell, and you have to work all of that into your two-hour window, and so things do end up being rushed just from the necessity of the genre. It's funny you, you make that comparison, Scott, because I've thought for a long time that when Next Gen started in 1987, they wanted Picard to be vastly different than Kirk. He was a little more polished, obviously older. He didn't want to be the whole, well, you don't agree with me? Well, I'll just blow your ship up. He wanted to be a little more coy with his romances, which you didn't see a lot of. He, he would romance the one, um, the thief there, whatever her name was, the woman who used to steal oh, stuff. Oh, uh, Vosh. Vosh. He had the little thing with Vosh that would bounce back and forth for a couple seasons. I think maybe there was one other romance he had. Otherwise, there wasn't a lot for him in those seven seasons. Finally, by this movie, it's like, well, you know, people probably think I am a big wimp. I need a woman. I need a big gun. Yeah, but you're not Jim Kirk. Yeah, but Jim Kirk always got women and guns. It Suddenly, it's like, no, I need to be tough and cool now. 
It's really weird how he how it's you, you hit the nail on the head because it does seem like it's as much as he didn't want that character to be Kirk and they wanted a very different captain on the show, by this movie it's like, no, you need cool people in this movie. Mushy mushy negotiators you can deal with on TV shows. People go to the movies, they want heroes that'll kiss chicks and blow things up. And Patrick Stewart's like, I need Kirk. Put me in Kirk. And then everything will be fine. Yeah, and there and there's that dynamic that people are looking for, and there's this idea that you're a wimp if you're not shooting people with your giant phaser, and you're a wimp if you have a counselor, and there's that whole attitude, and that is an attitude that I really, really hate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the whole the whole thing about oh you need a counselor. Well, you know, mental health is important. Yeah. Which is an aspect that I really wish they had examined at some point ever on the television show. Yes. Well, they showed him working with Counselor Troy as a counselor several times. Uh, a few times, yeah. Like like I said, her uses and characterization were very inconsistent. Mm. There's sort of two factors both reinforcing each other. One, Patrick Stewart wanted to have more action scenes and romance, and also the people making the movies had the idea, well, now we're in the movies, we need more action scenes and romance, rather than the more ponderous stories they told on the series. So the movies wound up having more action scenes and romance rather than the more ponderous stories they told on the, on the series. Right. The interesting thing, two things, two points, one about Troy and the other about what kind of captain Picard was when the show started and how it, and it does fit with insurrection. I know we are staying with this movie, but it does fit because Picard's personality and, and his general character change in this movie. I understood having a, a, a counselor on your ship. You should, it's a, it's a workplace. It's like a flying corporation. So you should have a, you know, HR kind of thing. Having her on the bridge. That's a bit much. Yes. Yeah, so you know, even the chief medical officer isn't a bridge officer with a right. designated bridge station. So I would, the, counselor who should by all rights be part of the medical staff right and have her own office and stuff so that i understood but i I agree with you glenn you you probably should have one secondly when we talk about picard and this metamorphosis from the series to this movie from kind of from kind of a more polished captain who handled things in a bit more of an intellectual way rather than kirk looking at somebody going all right well if you're not going to agree with me i'm just gonna blow your ship up that's what Riker was for Riker's character when it was created in the beginning of Next Gen, was meant for the Kirk fans. So, all right, well, all right, uh, Picard's the lily-livered. Let's try and work this out. But Riker always, always the one that's going to tell him, look, it's not going to work, blow him up. So if you have at least him there, it attracted the TOS fans who would have missed Kirk because, obviously, Picard's not Kirk. But Riker's kind of a modern-day version of Kirk. That's something that I've said for years now, and I'm not sure if I've ever said it on the podcast before, but... If you look at each iteration of Star Trek, at least to a certain point, I came up with this theory before they started making Enterprise. So, <laughs> But if you look at each iteration of Star Trek, there is a character you could point to and sort of call them like the sort of Kirk analog character to the extent that they're the womanizer, they get all the hot chicks, they get into more fist fights than everyone else. And you can track the de-evolution of that character because on the original series it was Kirk he was the captain he was the dashing hero he got all the women on Next Generation it was Riker he was the first officer the captain was older more intellectual more of a negotiator Riker was the one who led the missions down to the planet who's shooting people with the phaser who got all the women in DS9 it was Bashir who is depicted as like young and stupid 
And, and a little creepy at the beginning. And sort of creepy in his attempts to get all the women. And on Voyager, it's Tom Paris, an ex-con. So you can sort of track how society views those traits over time by looking at this character that embodies some of these Kirk traits and how that character is treated as the series is as the series go on. Mm-hmm. By Enterprise, they were sort of trying to return back to the ethos of the original series and the whole idea kind of got muddled because Kirk's characteristics kind of got split between several characters. That happened a lot on that show where the characteristics that are sort of common among various series got split amongst multiple characters. That's why you have like Seven of Spock and the emergency medical Neelix. And then with the reboot movies, obviously everything just goes (laughs) right back to the original 60s and Kirk is the womanizing fool again. Seven of Spock. I like that. (laughs) That was something that someone came up with on a message board, a Star Trek novels message board that Glenn and I read back in like 2001 when the show first started. And I have no memory of who said it, but it was on this message board. Somebody described those characters to pull was Seven of Spock and Fox was the emergency medical Neelix. And those are the best descriptions of those characters I've ever heard. (laughs) Emergency medical Neelix. Oh, that's great. (laughs) I love that. That's fantastic. It's almost like they kind of made Trip the womanizer kind of guy in that show. I thought that Enterprise did a fantastic job of depicting Jonathan Archer's character as captain. He was, you know, he was the doe-eyed, let's go out and see the universe. And then every episode for the first season and a half, they got the crap kicked out of him constantly. So I I thought that that they wrote that up well in that aspect. But yeah, Picard and Insurrection looked in the mirror and said, all right, I need to be a little tough now. You know, being the the negotiating, happy, smiley French guy is fine on the show, but people in the movies don't want that. They want a guy who's going to kiss the girl at the end and blow up the bad guy. That's how movies work. That's how we got to do it. And I don't want to say it was unnerving. I thought it was somewhat refreshing, to be honest with you. I will admit that carrying more of the ponderous in a good way mentality from next gen that we were talking about in first contact as well carrying more of that mentality into the movies would have been difficult they -hmm. would not have been big action shoot 'em up blockbusters that the studio wants to sell and are easy to market they would have been a little slower a little more intellectual and those are exactly the things that insurrection isn't Mm -hmm. one of the other notes from producers in the studio that I want to mention is they kept telling Pillar to make it less political. While Picard is doing all this and literally insurrecting and risking his career and court-martial and all this for a political cause and for a political issue that he feels strongly about, they were saying, make it less political. And I think one of the ways that was a little more political in the beginning is very interesting. And it's one thing I definitely want to bring up now is that In some of the original drafts of this movie, there was an entire cast of Federation mariners. These, like, non-Starfleet, non-military shippers. Shippers isn't the right word. You mean, like, merchant marines? Merchant marines, freighter captains, that sort of thing. Who were kind of congregating in this bar on the edge of the Briar Patch because they did local shipping between star systems and they knew the area better. And at the beginning of the movie, our intrepid Enterprise crew had to go to these people to get tips on how to navigate the Briar Patch to kind of get in because they knew everything so well from being locals. 
And then at the end of the movie, when Picard has to launch his insurrection and fight back against the Sona, who in this original draft were Romulans, and some Federation people, some Starfleet people who are assisting them, he has Riker go back out and get those people. And there's this whole dogfight in some of the original versions. There's this bigger space battle in terms of scope in space and in the atmosphere on the planet with all of these Federation mariners kind of coming back and grouping together to protect the Baku. And I think that's a very interesting direction the movie could have gone because we never really see non-Starfleet citizens of the Federation very often. At least not big groups of them, except like in the background in a bar, maybe. But Certainly not on ships. When we do see non-Starfleet Federation citizens, it's almost always on a planet. Exactly. And as active participants in a story. And as active participants in the action phase of the story. And there's this sense of kind of the untermension of the Federation. The, the, the people in capital letters kind of coalescing around this political issue, as it still is, really, that I think is a really interesting thing the movie could have done and didn't because they wanted to make it less political and that would have completely blown up the budget. That could have been taken in an interesting direction of Picard sort of recruiting his own... Now that he's decided to duck out of Starfleet, however temporarily, and fight back against Starfleet Command and their nefarious whatever they're trying to do, he sort of recruits the locals as his shadow army or whatever. That could kind of go either way. That could go in a really interesting way, or it could be the all the worst aspects of Avatar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You see, going through this book and going through some of the changes in the movie, you see how the elements of the finished movie kind of came together. Because instead of that big dogfight in the skies over the planet at the end of the movie with the Federation Mariners and the Romulans, instead you have the short, like, Act 1 action sequence when they're apprehending Data at the beginning of the movie. Where instead of going down the river and having Picard find his best friend from the Academy... Someone had the bright idea, how about he has to go down the river and the person who goes native is Data. And then that kind of got changed and smoothed out and made a little more bland and turned into, oh, Data malfunctioned. Again. Yeah, that whole apprehension of Data sequence just really didn't work for me. You're not chomping at the bit for Gilbert and Sullivan? Well, right from the beginning where the first thing Picard says is, if our first attempt doesn't work, then I'll kill him myself. Like, wow, holy artificial stakes. And then right through the thing where they're singing over the comm system and that somehow makes him neglect his defenses or something. Yeah, that whole scene didn't work for me. It really was just an excuse to let Brent Spiner mug a bit. Oh yeah, Brent Spiner gets to sing. Good for him. As he gets a little more influence on the story as these movies progress. And also, I suppose it is a little bit of progress for Star Trek, because usually their pop culture references don't go past Mozart, or they had Berlioz in the last movie. <laughs> so they, they're at least getting into the 20th century now. Gilbert and Sullivan uh, were 20th century? Picard in the movie says they're 19th century. They straddled the line. They were working in the you know, late 19th or early 20th. They were born in the 19th century. 
Do you guys think, this, I don't know if this is starts a new topic or not, but since you mentioned Brent Spiner and data, do you feel in terms of, because I wondered this today as I'm watching it and seeing the cover of the DVD, do you guys feel they were marketing data as like the Spock of this group? Oh, like was, Kirk he, had Spock and Picard had data because Riker really was never marketed as such like the straight laced guy who just had question and answer like Spock did. Well, Scott mentioned before that they had the Kirk character in all the shows. They also have a Spock character in every show. Mm-hmm. And Data was the one on Next Gen who was standing outside of humanity, who had that whole what does it mean to be human dynamic going on where Spock had the dual parts of his identity. Data was trying to change his identity in an important way. In DS9, you had Odo you know, looking in from the outside on the humanoids, and, you know, he doesn't quite understand the way their emotionality works Mm -hmm. in much the same way as Data, we're told, doesn't have emotions, and Spock is struggling to control his emotions. You always have a character who's kind of looking in from the outside, and they chose in Generations to bring Data into the inside in an important way when they gave him his emotion chip. And then in First Contact... They sidestepped it a little bit and then used it a little bit. In Insurrection, they just totally whiff on it. They just totally disregard his character development, not only from the movies, but from the last few years of the show. Yeah, Data in Insurrection is very much like season three or season four Data. Yeah, we get to this movie and suddenly Data's big thing is, what does it mean to be a child? And after all the things that happened on the TV show, and all the things that happened even in the last couple movies, I realize you have to do something with Data, and I realize it's hard once you give him emotions. You don't want to give him what he wants, because then where else is there for his character to go? But I'm not sure that totally regressing him and doing a lot of the same things again is the answer to that. Well, in terms of Scott's point about the marketing, to an extent, Data is the... second or possibly first most recognizable character from Next Generation. I mean, if you ask people to name Next Generation characters, I mean, like, random people that aren't Trekkies, they might know the Captain, but they're more likely to know Data than Riker. So that's sort of why he winds up in all these marketing things, why he winds up on all the movie posters, and why Brent Spiner winds up having so much influence over the later movies, because... Data is such an important character from a recognizability standpoint. In terms of Data's development, I think they totally and completely, 100%, fucked it up completely. Because you could tell new stories. You spent seven years telling stories about Data who doesn't understand emotions, who wants to understand emotions, who tries to emulate emotions. He has this fundamental separation from everyone else because they all have emotions and he's an android and can't understand it. You spent seven years telling those stories. Now, you can tell stories about Data plus emotions. How does Data deal with emotions? How does he work now that he has to deal with these emotions? And they told part of that story in Generations where he first experiences emotions and is completely overwhelmed by them. He is scared during a fight and can't deal with it. He feels guilty for his actions while he's scared and can't deal with it. Then you have First Contact, where he's still in a crisis. He can't handle the emotions and disables the chip. The enemy uses his emotions to try to manipulate him, and he has to combat that. 
those are really interesting stories you can tell now that Data has emotions and the development of this character with the emotions. They could have continued down that road. They could have continued telling new stories. You've only seen Data with emotions for four hours. You saw him without emotions for seven seasons. You're telling me you ran out of stories for with emotions? They completely... Not only do they drop the ball, but they intentionally let it go and run away from it and scream, I don't want the ball! I don't want the ball! I don't want the ball! They intentionally regress Data back to the middle of the series. Because apparently Michael Piller can't figure out how to tell a story about Data that isn't about his lack of emotions. Even though now he has emotions. There's a hundred characters in this movie and they all have emotions. Why can't you tell stories about Data with emotions? It, it, it's a complete failure and it's an intentional failure. It's not like they tried and failed. They intentionally said, no, I don't even want to attempt that. It's such a complete letdown. Uh, Scotty C, mm -hmm. what do you think they could have done in this movie that would have been a better use of data? Um, I realize we're like fantasy booking Star Trek now. <laughs> <laughs> I say put F. Murray Abraham in an elimination chamber. No, I'm only kidding. No, <laughs> what, what I think they, I think the, the crutch would have been to put a love interest for him. That would have been a great idea. Now, now that he has emotions. Now yeah. that he has emotions. He, has, he hasn't dealt with that one. I mean, the closest yeah. thing he had to a romance was the Borg Queen trying to manipulate him. So maybe he meets Donna Murphy or someone like that on the surface. That would have been a great story to tell with Data. Yeah. They're scared of him, all the people on the planet, because they think he's like this interloper. Except this one girl who's like, I understand. And then this progresses. And now... Would they do the same thing with that romance that they did to Picard and Donna Murphy at the end where it's like, oh, I'm in love with you. But, oh, crap, top of the hour. See you later. You know, it's like, <laughs> would they have done that too? I don't know. See, now I'm just picturing the scene where Donna Murphy starts, like, rubbing his skin and she says it's been 300 years since she's seen a guy without a tan. <laughs> <laughs> that whole Donna Murphy storyline would have been so much better if it was dated instead of Picard, though. I'm just imagining this in my head now and it's so much better. And imagine Data delivering the line and his sort of Data reciting Data. <laughs> to, no pun intended, but Data in his sort of reciting information voice. I have to return to my ship now, but I do have 734 days of shore leave saved up. <laughs> you know? That would have been great! And I had a lot and I have a lot of programmed sexual techniques. <laughs> like he said to the oh, oh my god! Yes! Imagine that! They're all doing their farewells, and then you cut to Data and the woman, and you cut in the middle of a conversation where all you hear is him finishing his sentence saying, programmed in multiple techniques. <laughs> that would have been awesome! It would have been great! Absolutely! And, be and because she's functionally immortal, you know, we have plenty of time to explore them. She's functionally immortal! And you so don't is he! Yeah, you don't know how many hundreds of years his body will last! <laughs> it's a match made in heaven! Precisely! That, that is so much more better than this super cliched shit with the kid. In ten <laughs> seconds, Scott came up with a better data storyline for this movie than Michael Piller apparently did in all the months of memos and back and forth bullshit. Just because he was willing to consider the emotions. Exactly. And, and, you know, he never got to fall in love in seven... He got to be a dad on the show, but he never got to be a boyfriend 
on the show or a lover. Well, you know? he, he tried to be a boyfriend, but it was when he had no emotions, so he wasn't very involved. Oh, that's just... right. He had, what's her name? Um, oh, I forgot her name. She was cute, too. Uh, you know, Not that we and, care about such things in this day and age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Man, that would have been so great. After his experience with the woman on the series where he didn't have emotions and so didn't really understand what the hell he was doing, and then his weird experience where the Borg Queen tries to seduce him, now he has, like, an honest-to-goodness mutual interest romance. Right. That would have been awesome. Yeah. But instead, Michael Piller goes, all right, Data, you're going to stay boring. Troy, get <laughs> naked in the bathtub. <laughs> You know, oh, like, God. <laughs> Riker, want to get a shave? It's like, oh, come on, really? Because UPN wouldn't allow her in the bathtub? Let's do it in the movie or whatever channel. That's next. really interesting. And a thought that I hadn't considered before, Dana isn't the only one they regress. Because they shave Riker's beard. They reunite him with Troy. Dana's not the only one that's regressing back to his characterization from 10 years earlier. And what use was she in the movie, really? They sit in the library. By the way. This was cut out of the, the deleted scenes. There's a scene where they're, I don't know if they're in like the Enterprise Library or whatever the hell it is. And they're talking about the history of the, of the uh, I guess, of the races, you know, the, ra- the race on the planet. And, and, you know, they're trying to be giggly like two high school kids. And somebody throws a wad of paper at Riker. And it turns out to be, if I remember correctly, Max Grodenchik, who was Rom on DS9. I totally forgot that he was in this movie. He's in a deleted scene. He was going to have a cameo as like a random Enterprise crewman annoyed yeah. that Riker and Troy are talking in the library. Yeah, and he she throw, he throws a wad of paper at uh, Riker because they're, they're yakking. But yeah, suddenly Troy is like a the high school senior prom queen in this movie. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like you were saying, oh, she blows the ship up. Then she, I don't know what she did in First Contact, and now she's shaving Riker in the nude. It's like well, well, in First Contact, she got drunk and then ran mission control for the Phoenix launch. Yeah, exactly. So. She ran mission control, hammered while you know while Zephram Cochran was trying to. <laughs> yeah, it's her first ever hangover, isn't it? You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, she she's nursing her first ever hangover in that scene. I didn't, I hadn't even put that together before. But we are going to get a little more into how the other characters deal with this uh, metaphysic radiation, and. Scott, you mentioned F. Murray Abraham. We are going to get to him, but it is going to be after this quick break to listen to ads for all the great shows that we have on this podcast network. We will catch you on the flip side. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nation's justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes at place you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. 
PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We got sports covered too with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott... Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceBeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro-wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Slees. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. are back. I am Glenn, I've got Scott and Scott, and we are still talking about Star Trek Insurrection. Now, I want to get a little more into the ensemble in this movie, because Next Gen was very much an ensemble show, much more than the original series, and that is a difficulty in a lot of the movies. But Insurrection, I feel, is one of the ones where they kind of made an effort to give everyone something to do. But, as we've already observed about a couple of them, what they're doing isn't really that interesting. Okay, you're going to have to tell me what they had some of these people do, because I think some of these people were just completely forgotten about. <laughs> I mean, what did Troy do other than fall in love with Riker again and talk about her boobs? And what did Crusher do other than talk about her boobs? Crusher was kind of forgotten. Troy, I think, fulfilled their idea of giving everyone something to do by making out with Riker and then getting in the tub with him. <laughs> As we said, there is an unfortunate trend in their use of Troy, so that definitely falls in there. Mostly in that context, I'm thinking of Jordy, who got, you know, the one scene where LeVar Burton 
not only doesn't have the visor anymore so he can act with his eyes. Now he doesn't even have contacts. Yeah, he doesn't even have contact lenses because they give him his eyes back in the movie and he gets an emotional scene to play. Um, as emotional as anything he had in the TV show with his whole sunrise scene. Which is, you know, a, a nice little moment for him as far as that goes. That was a really good moment for him as an actor. It was a really good moment for that character. At the same time, the scene itself just wasn't compelling. How do you mean? I mean... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way of explaining this other than repeating myself. I often run into these difficulties on these shows. <laughs> I just mean there was nothing about that scene that grabbed the audience, or at least grabbed me. I mean, it was great that LeVar Burton got that scene to play, and it was great that Jordy got that moment that, you know, wow, I could see with real eyes. This is amazing. This is something I've wanted since I was a child. This is wonderful. I feel good for the character. I feel good for the actor. But there's nothing about that scene that grips me and makes me watch the movie intently. There's nothing about that scene that makes me more attentive to the movie because this is a really important thing. As much as I appreciate that moment for that character and appreciate that scene for that actor, nothing about it was compelling at all. To me, at least. Uh, Scotty C., what do you think? I can be honest, I was never the biggest LeVar Burton fan to begin with. I always thought Jordy was kind of an empty character, personally, and all the episodes of the series that he was the main guy for usually stunk. That so, is true. So I was like, wow, you have eyes. Now you're on an episode of Reading Rainbow. Um, <laughs> because that was the last thing you were on where you had eyes. So it didn't like, I don't know, it didn't do anything for me anyway. It, it did feel very, I agree with Scott, it did feel very empty. Like, oh, how nice. That's great. Next. Like, I, I don't know, if was I supposed to be engaged by this? I wasn't. It's not like you could never see Jordy. It's not like you were flat out blind. You just had like infrared eyes or something. And, and I'll be honest with you, those contacts are freaking creepy. Couldn't they just give him regular colored eyes? Why did he have to have weird cyborg eyes? It seems so creepy. Well, he still needed something to signify that it was a sci-fi thing, even when they stopped using the visor. True. That's true. And he's probably like, all right, guys, I've had it with having this thing on my face. Give me something fake. <laughs> but I agree with you, Scott. I, I felt nothing for that. Oh, you see a sunrise. Isn't that nice? Next. I was always a LeVar Burton fan because I was a fan of Reading Rainbow even before I started watching Next Generation. And so I was always a fan of LeVar Burton. And I like Jordy on the show, even though you're right, most of this episode centered on Jordy sucked. But like I said, as, as much as I appreciated that moment for the character and appreciated the actor getting the chance to play that scene, it just it didn't have a significant impact on the story. It didn't tell you anything new beyond what we already knew, what Picard had just spent 20 minutes talking about with the native characters. So it didn't impart any new information. There weren't any revelations in that moment. It was just, oh, that's nice for Jordy. And so it didn't really do anything for me. Maybe I'm giving it a little too much credit just because they're actually using Jordy and giving him a scene that's his, which is a little refreshing. Since he did have a storyline in Generations with his capture and torture and all that. In First Contact, he was there and he had a decent scene with Zephram Cochran. But Jordy is a character who it's very easy to let him slide. Well, he was heavily involved in the engineering project of rebuilding the Phoenix. And so he got all of those bits while he was on the surface. And again, in this movie, other than the sunset, his main scenes were in the battle later. 
Yeah. Where he's in engineering handling damage and ejecting cores and shit like that. So he he finally gets the human eyes and everything as a result of the effects of where they are in this movie. Worf, meanwhile, does not get rejuvenated or have anything healed by this. He just gets pimples and oversleeps. Yeah, everyone else sort of starts to revert to slightly younger or their injuries start to heal themselves. Worf becomes an angsty teenager. (laughs) (laughs) What could you have done for him, you know? when, When this movie already has a group of villains who are basically the dirtbag teenagers of the people from the planet, <laughs> you know, writ large. Mm. And, mm. And, and so Worf is just left to do a couple of the stupid comedy bits inserted so there would be more comedy bits in the movie. And as would sometimes happen in other contexts, a lot of that kind of fell to Worf and a lot of that kind of undercuts Worf a little bit. Isn't that kind of cliched, too? Or, oh, ho, ho, let's take the gruff Klingon warrior, and now he has a gorch. Can I make a controversial statement? I wish you would. I'm going to make a bold statement. That's what we're about here. Yes. Worf's line, where he smashes the drone with the butt of his rifle, and then says he's definitely feeling aggressive tendencies. Better line than assimilate this. I agree. I don't know, I kind of like the assimilate this. As predictable as it is, I like Worf in general. Worf's one of my favorite guys in the history of all the franchises. So, or all the, the franchise, I guess. But that is a good line. The reason you probably think that is I think assimilate this just seems so predictable for that moment. That's exactly what I was going to say. It is such yeah. a kind of stock action movie one-liner. Also, yeah. it comes... It doesn't come in the middle of the scene. It's sort of everything else is already done. And so they, like, set up for it and no one's saying anything. It's not in the middle of a conversation. It's not in the middle of an action sequence. It's just sort of they're staring at the dish and Worf delivers the stock line and fires his rifle. It's it's a little too premeditated and prepared, whereas this seems more of an off-the-cuff, spontaneous line that he delivers. Yeah, Worf can be many things. I'm not sure he can be Bruce Willis. <laughs> you know, he's not going to look at the Borg and say, yippee Kaye, motherfuckers, and fire his <laughs> phaser rifle. <laughs> That's great. Could you imagine? yippee Kaye, mother... <laughs> the way, the way that... <laughs> say, yippee Kaye. <laughs> In fact, I'd go so far as to say that Data's line where he says resistance is futile before smashing the coolant tank, I like that delivery better than Worf's assimilate this. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, as good a line as Assimilate This is, I just the whole way that scene was set up and the way the line was delivered didn't strike me. Mm. I but, like all resistance is futile. You're right about that. I agree. Your statement has turned out not to be very uh, controversial. Yeah, it didn't mean as much resistance as I was expecting. Resi- well, resistance, as we know, is futile. Write in and call me an idiot, listeners. Yeah, send us your fanfic. Now, if <laughs> Troy and Crusher were in the bathtub... No, okay. <laughs> Speaking of fanfic! <laughs> uh, well, we, we did... I think that was something else we mentioned in the First Contact podcast. One of the things about Star Trek is its complete lack of LGBTQ, etc. characters. Give us something! What if a guy on that planet was attracted to Data in Insurrection? Sure, cool! That he, would be awesome! He, he's an android who just got emotions. Why the hell would he be straight? Data gets emotions and finds out he's gay! That would have been awesome! 
Imagine. And like, uh, I, he, he's always watched Riker with all this parade of women he's always had, but now he has emotions and he's attracted to men and he doesn't quite understand it. And he doesn't know who to go to to advice since he saw Riker as the person to go to for advice on women, but he's not looking for advice on women. So what does he do? Go to Troy for advice? <laughs> that would have been awesome. You keep coming up with these great data storylines and we didn't get to see any of them in this godforsaken movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, why not? Although you do get a lot of it in in these movies, you don't get a lot of it. But in the TV show, there were certain moments. You know, the Voyager, uh, Voyager had a couple, right? It wasn't Seven of Nine in, in a storyline with... Well, then you had Dax and the woman that used to be when Dax was a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the, the episode rejoined, which did get... That was uh, the closest they came. It was the closest they came, and they were trying, and I can give them credit for that much. For that episode. I think mm. for that episode, they did that episode really well. If you want to put that in the context of they've never had a regular character that was anything other than straight, and this is the closest they've come, then you can criticize it from that angle. But just looking at that episode itself, they handled the issues of that episode very well. Yeah, Because they completely right. ignored the issue. Nobody in the entire episode brings up the fact that Dax is a woman, and this person she's attracted to is also a woman. Nobody even mentions that because it's not even an issue in their relationship. Yeah. There's also the episode, I believe it was Rules of Acquisition, where the Ferengi woman is posing as a man to do business with Quark, and she is attracted to him, and Dax is all interested in the gossip. Ooh, you like Quark. And then later in, th later in that scene, she's shocked to find out this person is a woman. <laughs> because she was just interested in the gossipy aspect of, ooh, you like Quark. Right. So they, they did, a, they did a, a couple of things. But viewed in isolation, they handled those episodes. The issues in those episodes were handled as they should have been handled. Viewed in the larger context of this show has been on for 10, 17, 24, 28 seasons of television. And they've never once had a gay character viewed in that context, you can criticize it more. Yeah. It's amazing when you have an Android character, you could really do, I mean, the sky's the limit. That's what I was saying before. Look at all of these possibilities you have to explore. Now that data has emotions, you know, all of these different ways you could go, different directions. You could go different areas. You could explore. There's infinite possibilities. And their best idea was no, let's take away the emotions. Yeah, let, let's. When I was reminded of it, when I watched it last night, and they say, "Does Data have his emotion chip?" And I was waiting for a cool answer from Jordy, and instead we get, "No, he thought it better to leave it off." They're yeah, like, "What did. a lazy bastard!" Yeah, he didn't <laughs> bring it with him. Good uh, come job. on, Ugh, it's not like you forgot your, you know, your toiletry bag. What'd you forget? Oh, I forgot my emotion chip. It's like, come on. Is not only is it awful that they've basically reverted data to what his character was in the third or fourth season of the series, but even after they do that, the story they wind up telling with him is probably the worst storyline in the movie. Yeah. Him and this kid that's afraid of machines and... And has a CGI hamster. <laughs> has a CGI hamster and teaches data to play. I mean... That is the worst of all the various storylines in this movie. That is the worst storyline in the movie. <laughs> Pretty much. So, Data, this is what we're going to do for you in this movie. How about this? You're going to be told how to be, ready for this? This is great. Ready for this? A kid. All right. I'm the helmsman of a starship. 
I don't have time to play. I have Spot. That's my toy. My cat. As for those chicks over there or dudes over there, that's interesting. No, 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 no. We're going to teach you how to be a kid. Awful. But maybe that would have been an interesting storyline to tell with Data in the first half of season four. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a shame. And Brent Spiner's such a good actor. I mean, he could have been – he is a ham. You know, he does like that's, good. That's the thing. He wants to be a ham. He wants to mug at the camera. Yeah. How do you do that better than suddenly having emotions? Exactly. The sky, you're not a human. You can do whatever you want. Generations. And what's funny is I almost feel like they didn't find a happy medium. Like in Insurrection, there was hardly any of it. And in Generations, when he puts the chip in, I almost thought they went too far. Like they were just, now I'm laughing, now I'm falling down. It's like now they, they shoved all the emotions into too small a period of time. And then in Insurrection, you don't get any of it. Is yeah, utterly ridiculous. You can excuse generations to an extent because they're trying to tell the story. Like literally, this is the first day he's had emotions. Right, true. So no, he's gonna right. have he's gonna have trouble handling it, and maybe he's gonna go to extremes, and 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 you can do that. Like I said, I said this in our first contact episode that when the Borg activate his emotion chip and they try to use his emotion chip to manipulate him, and he tries to deal with his mounting panic at the situation he finds himself in by being snarky at the Borg Queen. That is probably the best use of data with emotions in the entire series of Next Generation movies. Because after First Contact, they basically try to drop the ball mm-hmm. and succeed. I think it really says something about Insurrection that we're talking about First Contact so much in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what it's funny is Insurrection's maybe my second favorite next-gen movie. I, lo- I still love the movie. As dopey as the data part of it is, I liked almost everything else. It's amazing. Insurrection um, has a lot of good ideas in there somewhere. I just don't think any of them are executed well. A lot of it just comes off as bland. Yeah. I mean, I think if your movie has ideas that it's trying to explore and you're really trying to push things, there are important ways in which I don't mind a bad movie as much as I do a bland one. Mm -hmm. And I think over the years, my memories of this movie have been very kind, but revisiting it before recording this show, I just found it dull. That's sort of what I was saying about Data. Like, if you try to come up with something interesting to do with Data with emotions and fail, like, people don't like the way it was handled in Generations because he was mugging so much and and he went to such extremes. Well, you could say, well, they tried and didn't do it well, but at least they gave it their best shot. Insurrection, they very... They they didn't just fail. They very deliberately declined to even try. Hmm. And you can see that again with some of the other storylines, the the whole insurrecting of Picard, his resignation to go help these people protect themselves against the nefarious plots of the evil Admiral of the Week. A lot of those other storylines are also areas where they could have been really interesting. They're really interesting ways they could have gone, and they very deliberately didn't. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little more about the villains of the piece the evil admiral of the week and Ruafo, all the other Sona, Galatian, and, and all them. Scotty C, let, let's go to you first. Do you think that the Sona and their plot and the whole villainous element of the movie, do you think all of that was enough to hang this movie on? You needed a good actor 
here's the key thing about movies. Movies, you have a little bit of a bigger budget so you can get somebody with gravitas. For instance, and I know we keep you are right, we do refer to, look at who the villains are in the next-gen movies. Or not villains, let me rephrase that. Well, yeah, let me say the villains. Antagonists. The antagonists in the, in the next-gen movies. Malcolm McDowell, pretty damn awesome. Yes. Alice Krieg, pretty damn awesome. Very good, yeah. F. Murray Abraham, pretty damn awesome. So if you're gonna ha- if you if you're gonna have a kind of a villain that you're not familiar with, the best thing to do for it is to have a fantastic actor doing it, to cultivate it in your mind and to and to make you in, uh, engaged in the story. Here are these people who don't want to grow old and die, so they sheet skin on their faces like they're wrapped in a do rag, like in a Hulk Hogan do rag. Fascinating, gross, good movie effects. But you have a guy who has zero patience for humans. Just get the stupid Enterprise out of here. Let me go to the planet and let us all get young and get rid of all those other people. Again, you're talking about a plot that probably could have been handled in a two-part TV series, but F. Marie Abraham hits a home run, in my opinion, as the main character, as the guy who, you know, who's carrying the torch for the for the bad guys. The Sone just want their youth back. And then you get the whole storyline at the end where they're all the same character, but they wanted to revolt, so they all got kicked off. And Yeah, where Picard's insurrection is acting against the legacy of the failed insurrection by the kids. Do you think all of the makeup effects they do on the Sona hurt the impact of F. Marie Abraham as a good actor trying to carry that character in that storyline? I don't think so. I think it was needed for the basis of the story. And... I mean, think of all the great actors that have been Klingons. Christopher Plummer, Christopher Lloyd, a bunch of Christophers. In fact, Christopher Lloyd said, I mean, Christopher Plummer said in the extras for episode six, I did it again, for part six, don't make me overly Klingon. I, I want to have a little bit of a hue. So he made him almost look like a like Genghis Khan or something. It's really weird. But no, I don't think I don't think the makeup had anything to do with it. I, I think he carried it well. I think his irrationality, because one thing about Star Trek villains are all irrational, and he's very irrational in the movie. I think he carried it very well. I don't think the makeup made a big difference. I think the Sona, as a race, as a culture, were very well thought out and very well executed. It's possibly the best thing in this movie, is the, just the little touches about the Sona. Once you know their background, that they come from this planet of immortals, basically this planet where they would have been immortals and were exiled for their insurrectionist beliefs. And so now they're no longer immortal and they want to be immortal again. And so they're sort of obsessed with youth. And so it manifests itself in these continual facelifts to the point where their skin is just like a sheet of leather stretched over their face. Their obsession with youth sort of also becomes an obsession with decadence where they're the only race I've ever seen that has a command sofa for the ship's captain. And they have these very opulent, heavily cushioned chairs in their conference room, rather than just a more utilitarian place to sit while you discuss things. And everything they have is intricately designed. Like, the curves of their ships follow through in the curves of the skin-stretching apparatus, in the background of the bridge of Rafo's ship, there's this like intricate lattice work over the like blue panels. Yeah. Like everything has a lot of detail and a lot of design to it. I agree with that. Yeah. By the way, speaking of skin stretching, the way the evil admiral died was utterly ridiculous. 
<laughs> Utterly <laughs> stupidest thing I saw. That was another dopey part of that movie. It's like, as you're remembering the scene where he's, you know, earlier in the movie where F. Murray Abraham is actually getting his skin done, you're like, you know that they're going to use this to kill somebody. And sure enough, here you go. Ah! Like Violet in, in Willy Wonka. It's like, oh, my face. Ah! And then they don't even like, they don't even go the whole way and have it horror movie-ish where his face just rips off. No, we just we have to have like the sort of alluding to. I just thought that was, I had to point that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That scene where Admiral Dougherty is killed is a little underwhelming, definitely. Yeah. The best part of that scene is where Rafo basically choke slams him onto the little table. That was pretty funny, yes. <laughs> and why do all these villainous races all have to be stronger than everybody else? That's cliche. Yeah, how old are the Sona? Did they, I don't remember, did they mention in the scene where Anij and the guy that looks disturbingly similar to Christopher McDonald? Yes. Did they mention in that scene how long ago this insurrection of Galatine and Rotine was? Um, yeah, uh, the dude who looks disturbingly like Christopher McDonald says a century ago. Okay. So a hundred years. Th- this whole insurrection happened, and so they've been you know, extending their lives through genetic engineering for that long. Again, the the dangers of genetic engineering and, like, end-stage plastic surgery is kind of an undercurrent. Yeah, they say Star Trek is forward-looking. This is so... Look at the faces of the Sona and how many years before the true Botox mocking was this movie made. (laughs) Oh, well, that's definitely a 90s thing as well. Think of, of the extremely judgmental stuff about people who were getting plastic surgery in the 90s. I thought that was more of a 2000s thing, or am I just misremembering the timeline? I mean, you think about, like, Chuck Norris and... There was a lot of that in the 2000s as well, but I think, in a way, it was more vehement in the 90s because the surgery wasn't that good yet. Mm. And so the people who got it, a lot of them, it was kind of obvious, and a lot of people were really judgmental about that. Mm. Plastic surgery goes back to the seventies, really. I mean, that's oh, a, a, a lot, for... a, a lot of a lot of different procedures, yeah. But in terms of the facelifts and you know, they extract toxins, yeah, out of Ruafo at one point, which is a big a big thing now. People are like doing all these juice cleanses and shit because of toxins, and so that's another kind of anti-technology undercurrent in the movie because the Baku get their long life through living simply on this planet with no electricity or machinery and you know they're mixing their dough outside on tables (laughs) while the Sona get their long life through this cold creepy metallic room where they get their skin stretched and have it stapled back onto their heads by their slave races. See, but the thing is, they get their long life from this radiation that exists in this nebula that surrounds the star system or whatever. They could just as easily live immortal in this radiation while having 7 billion people on the planet living in giant skyscrapers filled to the brim of library computers. They, they would still be bathed in this radiation. They would still be immortal. There's no reason they have to be the Butlerian Jihad Amish in order to achieve this long life and wisdom gathered over centuries. They could just as easily do it in a technological metropolis. 
They could, but then they wouldn't be another tribe of space Luddites in Star Trek. Which is something else that you come across a lot. Although, usually in Star Trek stories about space Luddites, there are people who have chosen to leave or just chosen not to participate in the Star Trek future utopia and, and all the technology inherent to that. So, to have these people be people who had it on their own and kind of came to the brink of technological annihilation. Something akin to the potential nuclear holocaust and, you know, that sort of horrifying thing that Western civilization was staring in the face of for much of the 20th century. It's implied that they got to that point and then chose to give up their technology rather than continue staring at that, as opposed to a technological transcendence of that issue that we're trying to achieve today. It's basically like the Vulcan Reformation under Surak, where they chose to give up their emotions and live lives dictated solely by logic, rather than run the risk of continual wars because of their violent emotions. Right, where the thing that could destroy us is something we have to give up, rather than something we have to just learn to use better. Well, that's sort of the message of both stories, though, isn't it? The whole message of the original series, whenever Spock talks about his life being governed by logic, the whole message of that series is you should be more like Kirk, where you learn to use your emotions and let them help you and use them for the best, rather than suppressing them entirely. And this story is just the same. Picard goes back out to the Federation to command his starship to make sure that technological society is better rather than giving up the technology because it's a universally corrupting influence. Scotty C., what do you think of the uh, Butlerian Jihad Amish? <laughs> uh, they were very... I thought that was very typecast. Like, oh, here's another bunch of... And you ever notice peace-loving people all wear khaki? You ever notice that everybody wears brown? We're peace-loving people. Let's all wear khaki. Oh, yeah, everyone's in bloody earth tones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, apparently, ooh, he's a murderer. <laughs> you know? Apparently, these people that will work with all natural processes and natural fabrics, they haven't discovered any dyes. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they were fine. You, you kind of understand if these are people that just want to live a nice existence and never die, then maybe that's their whole... It's almost like a deal they make with themselves in their conscience. You know what? We're very lucky to be on a planet where we could stay this way forever. Why? Let's just live off the earth and just be peace-loving people. And let's not bite our nose to spite our face or whatever that term is. And let's just live life under the radar. You know, we don't need weapons or that kind of thing. Let's just live off the earth like simple people because we'll be here forever and we're never going to die. It isn't that great. And, you know, my question is, why didn't the stretchy face people... The uh, the Sana. Why don't they just share the country? Why do they have to kick them out? I guess well, the whole they kicked us out first, so we're going to kick them out now. Yeah, you'd think a planet with six hundred inhabitants could find some place for a second community. Yeah, how big is the planet? The size of Pluto? What is it? A, a marble? Well, there's there's the whole retribution, vengeance, family feud angle to it, and also they stuck in a line arbitrarily just to kind of sidestep that issue. I think they say that because Ruafo is producing so many toxins, 
you know, they're not going to live long enough to be fully healed by the effects of the planet. They need to harvest the rings and put it in a more concentrated form. There's a whole technical technobabble solution that is put in just to kind of solve that. Well, I thought what Scott was saying is what happened a century ago that these people couldn't just like move a couple hundred miles away and start a second village and live however they wanted. Why did they have to leave the planet? Well, then they would have been confined there. They wanted to go out. They wanted to live with the Outlanders. <gasps> the Outlanders. Who are scared of androids, particularly ones that have no plot points. Um, speaking of, if I can open up another door here, this was the first Star Trek movie where it was solely CGI. The, the starships, yeah. Everything. There was not one model, which is a heartbreaker. Not one model in the whole movie. Yeah, it's kind of a transition point. They had been transitioning the television shows from models to CG work, and this is the first movie where, indeed, all of the ship models are CG. Mm. That's one way that that whole recapturing data scene, in my opinion, suffers a bit, because they have these shots where you're, they show the shuttle flying through the atmosphere, and then they try to show the people in the cockpit through the window, which I'm sure in 1998 was a whole, wow, look what we can do with CG now. But 18 years later, watching it back, it's like, wow, that really doesn't look good. Yeah, there are things in this movie that do kind of hold up and do look good. I mean, the spaceships still look fine. The the briar patch, the whole uh, Riker maneuver space battle at the end still looks fine. I do like the space battle in this movie, the fight between Riker and the Sona ships and the briar patch. I do really like the space battle as a, you know... a whiz-bang, blow-shit-up space battle. I, I like this space battle. Yeah, except when Riker calls up the joystick. Oh, yeah, but that's... The yoke. That, <laughs> that, that, that's just That's a dumb. little unfortunate. It's just dumb. How do you control an entire starship with one joystick? Oh, my God. With, with, with a friggin'... And it's not even like a... It's not even at a station. He has to like stand in front of it and bend over to yeah. grab it. And it's not even like a Mike Okuda designed joystick. I mean, it has the red trigger. It looks exactly like a joystick you get at CompUSA in 1998. <laughs> Comp yeah. Yes. I mean, it is just dumb. One of the bits that I pulled out of Mike Piller's book, there's a description. Let me actually go for it. Does he it. talk about the decision to put the joystick in? His treatment says, in an instant, a joystick pops up from the control. He grabs the stick, ellipsis. A computer gamester's dream, ellipsis. Oh, God. Like, uh, please. Why, why? 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 One thing I had forgotten about this movie until we watched it the other day was the Trill Ops Officer who is so turned on by Riker's battle tactics while when he takes over the helm. When he grabs a stick. <laughs> oh, yeah. When, when, he, when he says, like, we'll suck in the gas into the collectors and we're going to shove it down their throats. And this Trill looks at him like, oh, man, I'm getting some of that later. Oh, yeah. Can I get in the bathtub next? <laughs> <laughs> Got any place else you need to shave? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had totally forgotten about her. <laughs> Oh, that was good. But <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! All right, Riker. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa, stick. I so is it automatic or to... standard? Did, you know, that's you know that's the key. Do we have to? 
pop the clutch? I mean, if they had reverted Riker back to season three, Riker, the way they reverted Data back to season three, Data, bow chicka bow wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you like my moves? Yeah. The only thing they were missing was at the end of that scene for Counselor Troy to walk on the bridge and give like a look to Ensign Perrin as if to say, oh, this is what you're doing now? <laughs> now that we just got back together? Like, that is exactly as stereotypical as the rest of the Riker-Troy relationship in this movie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, Deanna, you know, we're in a good place right now. You think I can invite the Trill over? <laughs> you are the one that keeps telling me that the, that the solution to relationship issues is always polyamory. <laughs> Almost always, yeah. Or, okay, okay, the solution to a love triangle with one man and two women is either polyamory or the two women going off with each other. Political lesbianism. <laughs> a betazoid, a trill, and a first officer walk into a walk bathtub. Into a bar. <laughs> walk into a bar, and the first officer walks out alone. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean... The climax. <laughs> <laughs> That's not in this movie. What? Um, the family podcast. Yes. Yeah, our family. <laughs> <laughs> um, the battle at the end. There was a, actually an original ending and then an alternate ending. The rings around this planet are apparently the rings that create the metaphysics. So the original ending was that F. Murray Abraham would get shot out of the collector thing. You know, the thing with the, you know, the. For those that are listening, the ship with the little parachute things on it. He gets chucked into the rings and then de-ages from 500 years old to 20. Apparently, they didn't want to do that. I don't know why. That was something that changed after the test screening. The test audience didn't like it. The studio didn't like it. They thought they needed more explosions at the end. Right, so they just blew them up. (laughs) There's still an actor in the credits that's credited as young Rafo even though the scene doesn't exist in the movie anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly, because he gets de-aged to, like, a teenager yep. and then disappears, and we're given to assume that, you know, he's a zygote now or something. <laughs> Do you think that was a smart move? I think it's probably just as well. I'm not, I haven't seen that deleted scene, but I'm not sure how well that sequence would have worked with the whole de-aging everything. It looked all right. It didn't. It, it, it is true that for a movie purpose, you kind of need something to blow up. I hate to be, yeah, I I hate to be cliched about it, but... I think it's just as well Picard beams away and then the, the ship blows up and Rafa is on it. I think that's fine. Yeah, for this movie, the way everyone was trying to make this movie into such a slam-bang action piece, it's just as well to have the whole thing just blow up at the end. And there is that one shot of the Enterprise flying up next to the Collector as it starts to blow up from the bottom. That is a pretty good shot. You sort of made this point about Picard in our other podcasts, but this is a, you know, shoot 'em up, blow 'em up action movie where the climactic fight is a one-on-one fight between Patrick Stewart and F. Murray Abraham. Yes, true. I don't think there are enough action movies with older actors. We've had a few of them since then, like we've had the Red movies and stuff like that. That's mostly we have them now because we still can't let go of our action stars from the 80s. Yeah, basically, that's the entire reason we have the Expendables. The Expendables, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's, oh, hey, remember when you really liked the movies these people were in? That's why we have the Expendables. That's why we have Red. That's why we have 
70-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger still playing the Terminator. Yeah. I think that's why Picard had to be tough, because he comes off as, I mean, how old is he now? Patrick Stewart is. In 2016, he's 75. So I'm always shocked at how young Patrick Stewart is. He was in his 50s at that point. Yeah, because he was born July 13th, 1940. So he'll be 76 in July. So in 1998, he was... He was 58. 58. Or 57, depending on when his birthday is. Yeah. It's amazing. I would have said he was 58 in 1987 when Next Gen premiered. <laughs> no, he was... Which means in ni- then he was 47. Wow. Well, God, talk about Star Trek numerology if he was 47 when the show premiered. <laughs> <laughs> which means how old was Shatner... He's eighty. He's eighty-five. Now, yeah. Wow. Holy crap! Eighty-five, which means in generations he was, which is nineteen ninety-four. So that was he would have been sixty-three, and he mm-hmm. looked younger. I didn't think he looked that old in generations. He's always looked a little young. Yeah. This movie isn't as dark and dreary and serious as. First contact, and so they've made the attempt to light the ship better. Yeah, and they don't really succeed because the ship is still made of really, really, really dark gray material. I mean, they light it as best they can to try to make it look like a normal ship, but it still just looks really dark and dreary. Yeah, the ship is noticeably brighter than in First Contact, and the locations in California where they shoot the planet side scenes are very, very bright. I mean, really, the only really dark setting they have in the movie is in the caves, which, of course, was another budget issue. I don't think anyone was that enthusiastic about setting so much of the movie in caves, but whatever ideas there were for other places to have those scenes kind of fell away when the budget people said, you know, we have a cave set. And that's actually, I believe, (laughs) in, in the famous cave set that they built for Encounter at Farpoint in 1987 and then, you know, added to and changed up when they had the budget to and did a major addition to it for Insurrection and then maintained that same set until the end of Enterprise in 2005. I remember reading about that, doing like set reports on Enterprise and, you know, production reports on what they're doing for the upcoming season. And there are reports of, oh, they're filming in the cave set. It's like, it's like almost capitalized the cave set. Yeah. It's, it's a little like in 1970s Dr. Who, when they kept going to the same rock quarry all the time, you know, every other planet was a rock quarry. How many episodes have been set in Vasquez rocks? Yeah. Yeah. There's also Vasquez rocks. Some, some of these very famous filming locations. I mean, God, they're doing a new Star Trek show now, and I know they're filming it in Toronto, but if they don't do an episode of Vasquez Rocks, it's not Star Trek. Precisely. (laughs) I concur. Now, you mentioned that the movie is lighter, and we've talked a lot about that in terms of the story as well, but it it still seems a little tonally off that they wanted to go for a much lighter movie, they wanted to put comedy in, but the plot is still about imperialism. It's about imperialism, but they're trying not to be political. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like, the, the plot fundamentally is about imperialism. I mean, uh, Picard references, you know, we've had episodes in our past where, you know, forced relocation has been some of the darkest hours of our history, where 90s Star Trek 
loves bringing back Native American genocide and doing forced relocation stories and sometimes forced relocation allegories to bring up how that's like the greatest sin in 90s Star Trek in some ways. And the Fountain of Youth story that they do with the rejuvenating radiation on Baku is also fundamentally about imperialism because the Fountain of Youth was sought in Florida by the conquistadors as they were conquering North America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are these undercurrents of politics and of imperialism that are running through it when they're trying very hard not to really do a movie directly about that. Again, that refers to the same criticism we had about several other aspects of it, where it's not like they tried to do a critique of imperialism and failed. They very deliberately tried to do this movie without making it into a critique of imperialism. And that stood out to me when I saw one of the studio notes on an early draft that they need to clarify the struggle in the movie without getting too deep into the politics because whatever executive was writing that particular memo wasn't sure whether the audience would side with Picard. Which, you can look at it from one view and say, oh, the rich movie executive didn't think they would side with the people being relocated. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, rich dude might think that. But you could also phrase Picard's role in the movie as standing up against the Federation and saying the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many. I mean, there is a conflict between utilitarianism and virtue ethics at the heart of that story. Well, you have to weigh the difference of the level of need, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, and also, if you're gonna get, if you're gonna get into utilitarianism and virtue ethics, you also have to incorporate property rights. Yeah. True. But I don't know at what stage the story was at when the person was writing that memo about people siding with Picard. It's not like it's a universal thing that everyone sides with Native Americans when they complain about being forced off their land in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know that that fear of people siding with Picard is that remote a concern, except, of course, they made everyone on the planet white, so people were more likely to side with them, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, how many non-white people are in this movie other than Michael Dorn? Well, LeVar Burton. LeVar. LeVar Burton, yeah, true. And okay, are, aside from the main cast. There I are mean, a the handful, whole, I think, I, I on suppose. the planet. But a, a handful of the background extras on the planet. But uh, yeah, yeah, None of the main people we meet of the natives. And one of the Sona races that they've accumulated. One thing about the Sona that seems a little overly convenient, and we talked a little bit about the design of the Sona, and it was done really, really well in some cases, but one thing that seemed a little too convenient is that the Sona denote rank the exact same way that Starfleet does. Yeah, true. With those like metal bands over the shoulder that correlate exactly with the Starfleet pips in terms of how they denote a rank. They also were very sand-colored, too. I like blue. There wasn't enough blue. Well, the blue in this movie was in the background of the Sona ships. True. You know, the bright <laughs> blue panels in the background of Ruafo's bridge and all the blue panels in the collector during the final yes, action true. scene when Picard is climbing up the scaffolding there. And the water. I know you don't like to analyze these things. Well, the water, we can get to that. <laughs> I know you don't like to analyze these things in universe as much as I do, but the design of the collector seems so convenient to the story. Like, why would you build a radiation collector and build in a self-destruct sequence? 
And then they say, well, there's cryo tanks that vent one minute before the collector activates. A, what part of collecting radiation requires cryogenic tanks? And B, they had stopped the previous countdown at six seconds. So wouldn't those tanks have already vented 54 seconds before they stopped that countdown? Yeah, it's definitely another thing that's very convenient. Also, what kind of cryogenic coolant is flammable from a phaser shot? Again, these are things that I like to try to analyze in-universe and you just sort of dismiss as production things. I I don't know the particular chemistry of the substances that are used in the movie. Can we talk about the phasers for a minute? Well, let's talk about and the And I do want to get back to Scott's, Scott Scott brought off the water and there's a whole bunch of issues there, but throughout this movie, the people on the surface keep using these giant honking phaser rifles. And it's never the best weapon to use in a situation. They're fighting these tiny little drones that zip and zoom around and back and forth. A hand phaser is clearly the better weapon for tracking these things and trying to shoot them down. And yet, Picard has to stand there with this giant phaser that's bigger than his arm. Because it looks cooler, I suppose. And then at one point, Worf has like a bazooka. (laughs) Hmm. And then even when they have the cave-in, there's a cave-in in in the caves, and they try to blast their way out. And they're so concerned about further instability in the caves and, like, is it safe to get rid of these rocks or is it going to cause another cave-in when their support goes away? They don't use a hand phaser that they set on vaporize. They use one of these giant phaser rifles set on explode. None of it makes sense except, ooh, the giant rifle looks cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Scotty C., what do you think of the use of all those things and a little more broadly the uh, phaser fights toward the end of the movie. The phasers seemed very primitive for 24th century, at least the way they looked and the way they sounded. Uh, I was hoping for something that sounded a little smoother. Since when do they need big rifles? I mean, seems like the hand ray phasers would have worked perfectly fine. It worked out okay. I mean, I think the premise of the of the phaser fights with the... With the uh, uh, the drones was that wow. There's nothing we have to do it this way because there's nothing on this planet to fight with. So the hiding behind rocks and shooting at the drones was slick looking because it kind of needed to be. They painted themselves into a corner with the whole we don't have any weapons here because we're you know pacifists. But what if we get attacked? Oh, I don't know. Uh, maybe people with phasers will come, and they did. So I'm fine with that. But yeah, the big like the super phasers, I don't know, seemed unnecessary. They're so unwieldy. Yeah, they are. When you're you're trying to shoot at these little drones that are zipping around. Yeah, I think they would have been fine with the hand phasers. I I do agree with that. And the same thing when Picard has that fight with Rafo at the end where they're sort of getting in close quarters. The phaser rifle is just sort of unwieldy to use in that situation. I thought he was going to butt him in the jaw with it. I'm like, wow, boy, they're cutting it old school, huh? (laughs) And they didn't, but... um, That almost would have been better. Yeah, he would have had no choice. But yeah, no, I, I, I like the uh, phaser fight in that aspect that they had to shoot the drones down because they really had nothing else. They didn't sound like they had like tracking or radar or anything like that. But I think it would have been cooler just to use the, the hand phasers. I mean, I don't understand. Phasers are phasers. I don't get why you need big like rifle phasers. Are they stronger? Um, I guess in theory they're supposed to be stronger, but even the hand phasers have a vaporized setting. Yeah, so I don't know. Even even in terms of effects, I think the beam from the hand phasers looks cooler than these little pulse things that were coming out of the phaser rifles. Yeah, I know. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that's kind of a regression to more 
action movie style aesthetics when they changed the phaser rifles and got the new ones in first contact and suddenly they fire bolts like bullets rather than the phaser beam. Like when you're marching into battle against the Borg, okay, fine, use the rifle. I can understand that. But if you're you're trying to hit a fast-moving target or you're trying to clear away a cave-in without causing more instability, I really think the hand phaser is the better tool for those situations. Again, analyzing this in-universe rather than, let's make a Star Trek thing that looks like a machine gun from a Sylvester Stallone movie. Yeah, oh, I think God. the hand phasers would have been fine. Yeah, I'm just glad they never did, like, a Gatling gun, machine gun repeating phaser. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Like, good God, could you imagine? Oh, that would have been so stupid. The regular phaser fires a continuous beam. Oh, good Lord. Except, you know, in first contact, now they fire bullets. Oh, my goodness (sighs) gracious. Except for the scene where Picard actually gets a machine gun. But, anyway... (laughs) <laughs> that's right, yes, in the in the uh, in the the holodeck. That's right. Yeah. As always, before we wrap this up, we always like to talk about the scores for these movies. This is, of course, another score by Jerry Goldsmith coming back for his fourth Star Trek movie. Now, he had been very successful on First Contact. Everyone loved the work he did there, and so it was natural enough to just bring him back. And this is one. Scott, my Scott, that I know we're going to disagree on. I don't like the score of this movie at all. What is it that you don't like about it specifically? If I had to name one thing, the thing I most dislike about this score is there is no point in this movie where there's really good music for more than about 30 seconds at a time. There's no like theme that is explored for two or three minutes... There's no, like, long sequence where they play the two minutes of really good stuff. Every single bit of music in this movie where you think, oh, that sounds kind of interesting, it never lasts for more than 20 or 30 seconds. Usually more like 10 seconds. It almost works better in the movie than it does listening to it on the CD. And I don't even like it in the movie. In fact, I think this movie might have been better with a better score. I think some of the action scenes, especially on the planet when they're fighting the drones, I think that scene in particular could have been a lot better just with a better dramatic score under it rather than the like bursts of 10 seconds of this and then the schlocky synths are back. And I think a better score would have improved this movie, in particular that scene, a lot. But even at that, the score works better in the movie than listening to it on its own where it's just nothing. It is absolutely nothing. Even the main theme I don't really like. It works in the movie to underscore the scenes that are shown under the titles. It's a good theme to show for all these like pastoral paradise scenes of the Baku. It works to underscore that scene, but to listen to it, it's, it's nothing. I think this score is, is fine. I do rather like it. There are pieces from it that I, that I really like. There isn't a Star Trek feature score that I don't like, frankly. Which I know is something else we disagree on. I will agree that the synths are kind of schlocky. I mentioned when we did Star Trek V that I'm not a fan of Goldsmith's synthesizers, like from the 80s on, really, except for very few instances. First Contact, I I, I said the synths there were entirely inoffensive, but in Insurrection, they are a little more schlocky. There's one in 
the opening sequence when Data reveals the duck blind that they're using to spy on the Baku, there's a synthesizer line there that sounds like a sneaker scuffing a basketball court. <laughs> I remember it, that, yeah. Yeah, some, some of the yeah. effects just sound bad and really dated, even for the time. I mean, that does sound kind of like a 1980s synth, or earlier, maybe, but... I think the real story of this score also reflects some truths about the movie, in that Goldsmith is scoring this movie like any other action thriller he did in the mid to late 90s. I listened to a few of them to be able to discuss this a little more intelligently, I hope, and... He did U.S. Marshals in 1998 as well, and that score has tons of similarities to this one. There's one action motif that is completely lifted. I I don't know which one he wrote first. I I don't remember the release dates of the movies, but there was one that is shared by both movies. And uh, U.S. Marshals also has a lot of the mixed-meter action music that Goldsmith was uh, noted for by this point. And they just sound... Almost exactly the same in some instances. And I think that reflects some uncomfortable things that Goldsmith is scoring this sci-fi action movie in some ways exactly like a crime thriller set in the modern day. Whereas Goldsmith in this period really shined more in historical adventure movies. I love his score for 13th Warrior. I love his score for The Mummy. Insurrection, I think suffers from being smoothed out a little. I want to say it doesn't have as much personality because of some of those similarities, but the personality that it does have comes through in a lot of the synthesizers. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. personality, in a mm. way. In terms of the Baku theme, I think it's a beautiful theme. I'm a little disappointed it's not used other than at the beginning and end of the movie, because the planet-side scenes are typified by three themes. There's the Baku theme, there's the love theme for Picard and Anij, which is based on that four-note quest motif that Goldsmith had in Star Trek V and then brought back in First Contact and uses in all of his Star Trek scores after the motion picture. That forms the basis of the Picard and Anij love theme. And I think listening to it again with that in mind, I really kind of got how that whole theme is based on four-note phrases that really carried through that use of, of that motif that he has in his Star Trek scores. And there's the uh, New Sight theme, which is most prominently used during Geordi's sunrise scene. So I think with those three themes used to score the more placid planet-side scenes, not the action scenes, obviously, but some of the dialogue scenes and the emotional moments on the planet, I think... With the strong emphasis that the movie places on the action to have three different themes for those more placid scenes comes across as a little unfocused. Also, none of those themes is longer than about five or ten notes. None of those themes takes longer than about six seconds to play. Even when you play them slowly, they're ten seconds, and he never explores them beyond just repeating them once. Well, that's what I mean when I say it's, it's a little unfocused. I think each theme is perfectly fine. On its own. You know, I've said many times that I prefer the long exploration of themes that he got to do in the motion picture, for example, and a a little bit in the other movies. But because there's so much emphasis in this movie on action, 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 move, 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 
then it's the more action-oriented themes, what's called the insurrection theme in the liner notes for the expanded edition of this score from GNP Crescendo Records, and the Sona theme, which is given a few workouts. It's in that scene with the drones that you were talking about before. It's in a lot of the action scenes, actually. There's one kind of slower, more imposing arrangement of it when the collector is deploying toward the end of the movie that the last time I saw it really struck me how much that is almost trying to be the arrangement of the Borg theme that I mentioned in First Contact when the escape pods are launching. It's this really imposing, almost victorious version of the villain's theme for when the villain is enacting their plan. But it comes off as just a little low rent. You can almost draw a uh, comparison to what we said earlier at the very top of the show when you talked about where was Star Trek in 1998 and we said it was kind of coasting. If you look at the original series movies, they kept having new composers every movie. They didn't have the same composer for more than two movies. They had Horner, they had Goldsmith, they had Leonard Roseman, they had Cliff Eidelman. Generations comes along and they use Dennis McCarthy. They have all these different people who have all these different ideas and all these different styles and they all apply them to the movies and you can say some work better than others, some are liked more than others, but they at least have all these different ideas that they bring to the different projects. And if you look at the Next Generation movies, the last three movies are scored by Goldsmith and Goldsmith and Goldsmith in his third and fourth and fifth Star Trek movie. And so, again, it just sort of feels like they're coasting and going along with whatever they've been doing, rather than trying something new, trying something better. Yeah, there's the sense by this point that Goldsmith has kind of taken ownership of the Star Trek franchise musically, at least the film franchise. And really, I haven't seen Nemesis recently. I've seen Nemesis exactly once in my life, and that was when I saw it in the theater, and now I will see it for the second time when we do our Nemesis podcast. But I've listened to the soundtrack recently because I was trying to put together music bumpers for these podcasts we're doing. The Star Trek First Contact main title is the last, longest, best piece of music that Jerry Goldsmith composes for the franchise. The music in the rest of the First Contact movie is fine, but I don't think any of it is stellar. And the theme never really comes up in a full rendition, again, throughout the main body of the movie. There are parts of the movie that are scored very well, but it's always, you know, 30 seconds or a minute at a time. It's not any kind of longer piece. Then the Insurrection score, I don't really like it all in the Nemesis. We'll get there. So if you're looking for about a two to three to four minute at least two to three minutes. I forget exactly how long the First Contact main title is. But if you're looking for at least two to three minutes of really good music and a good theme to listen to out of the Jerry Goldsmith Star Trek work, the main title from First Contact is the last time you get that. Throughout the main body of First Contact, the entirety of Insurrection Nemesis, you don't get anything that's as good as that First Contact main title cue. Now, we were talking about this off-air earlier today, and... You and I are counting these things much differently. I think your attention kind of drifts from these things a little more easily than mine does. Well, I'm looking for... If I'm looking for something to listen to, and I'm not talking about how good it is at underscoring a scene in a film, I'm talking about if I want to listen to something recreationally. 
I don't want 30 seconds of interesting music and then 30 seconds of aimless dreck while See, I wait for the next bit of good music. I want all good music the entire time I'm listening. Yeah, it's the phrase aimless dreck where we're differing here. You enjoy the aimless dreck? There's a lot of stuff that you think is aimless dreck that I don't. That I take more as fleshing out a piece and allowing things to breathe. So that's where we're kind of diverging there. And the way that Goldsmith constructs his pieces a lot of the time, especially toward the end of his career, is really not conducive to the way that you're defining these things. I'll grant that much. It's not conducive to the types of music I enjoy listening to. Yeah, well, Goldsmith isn't someone I think you ever really loved. Not in total. He's done some stuff I really like. I, yeah, I love the first contact theme. I, I love, really like the motion picture main theme. Ilya's theme is fucking beautiful. Yeah. How long is Ilya's theme? Even the overture, which is a relatively short track, that's at least two, two and a half minutes. Yeah, I think so. There is nothing post-first contact main title. There are three movies worth of music that does not have as long a sequence of good music as the overture from motion picture. And that's one of the shorter tracks from that CD. Well, we're just... We're defining these things very differently. That's that's just where, where we are there. This isn't the, supposed to be the Goldsmith career retrospective. We're supposed to do that in the next episode. Yeah, we're going to do the Goldsmith career retrospective next time. Scott, any thoughts on score? Yeah, I, I'm sorry, Scott. I know we can sometimes leave the guests behind a little bit on this section. <laughs> no, I was, I, I was utterly fascinated by that discussion. I did not want to interrupt it. It was fascinating. <laughs> um... <laughs> Looking at the looking at the track list from Insurrection, I mean the Baku Village track is six fifty three. It's a decent length. Then there's other stuff like Tractor Beam, thirty eight <laughs> seconds. Well, yeah, especially on on an expanded version that has the entire score uh, that was yeah. issued in twenty thirteen. There are going to be some some shorter tracks like that, some interstitial, you know, tracks for establishing shots and things like that. Yeah. And the uh, Baku Village track, of course, has the basketball court sound effect uh, later on. <laughs> yeah, that, that track is basically the main title and then the whole data fighting the research team sequence, yeah. right? In including a little bit when we first see the Starfleet people and some of the Sona in the duck blind, there is a trumpet line that Goldsmith kind of weaves in that I didn't realize until I was reading the liner notes for the ex expanded score, but is actually reminiscent of the Starfleet theme from way back in the motion picture. Really? Which is is an interesting, subtle bit. Can I ask a question? And I don't entirely mean this as a criticism, but it might be a criticism. You've seen this movie several times. You've listened to the CD several times. Yeah. If you didn't realize what that theme was until you read the liner notes, is it really that good a use? Yeah, because there are times when I read things in these liner notes and then go back and listen to the music again, and I don't hear it. There's an entire book on the subtleties of the scores to the Lord of the Rings films, and I love the scores and I love the book, but there are entire themes in there that I listen to the music and I read the notes saying where they pop up, and I kind of don't get it, because for all that we talk about the music and I can talk about my impressions and some of the subtleties that I do get, there is a whole lot I don't know about music. But there are times like this where, where I read it and then I listen to it again and I say, 
yeah, that is what that is, where it just happened not to pop before. I did notice they used the motion picture theme, I believe, if I remember correctly, exactly once in this movie, the first time you see the Enterprise in space. Yeah, before the end credits. And yeah. it doesn't show up again until the end credits, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we mentioned in, in First Contact, it's only in the body of that score a couple of times, and it's something that Goldsmith was really de-emphasizing. Why? Oh, I wish I had a satisfactory answer. Just because he hates themes, and that's why he doesn't have more than 20 seconds of good music anymore? Well, he doesn't hate themes. They're, they're, I, I just listed, like, six different themes in this thing. Yes, and they're all ten seconds long. How long is that motion picture theme? Even the short, condensed version they used for the Next Generation main titles is a minute or two. Oh, the main title is about a minute of the actual theme, because that's 30 seconds of the... Alexander Courage fanfare intro. And the Alexander Courage fanfare also is, is used in the main title and the end credits. Yes, it is. Yep. And so he's bringing back these things that are very emblematic of, of Star Trek music and very emblematic specifically of the next generation, but those are not in the body of the score as much. They have, they have been phased out. I don't like that. I would like them to be phased in. No, I know. Frankly. Yeah, that's a fair point. I like themes. I like themes that are more than four notes. I like themes that are more than 20 seconds. I like explorations of themes that go on for minutes. Minutes, as if that's a long period of time for a piece of music. Well, try listening to to a modern action score. I mean, the themes have been phased out a lot, and Goldsmith, while he was still working regularly, was held up as sort of a paragon of old-style thematic scoring. If they call Goldsmith a paragon of old-style thematic scoring, what the hell do they say about Giacchino? We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's doing Star Trek. We'll get there. Fair enough. Oh, also, one other note that I noticed in the liner notes for the score earlier was that they pointed out that Goldsmith often had absolutely no idea what was actually happening in these movies. Like, he wasn't a big sci-fi guy for all the sci-fi movies he scored over the course of his career. And there is an anecdote from Goldsmith's agent who visited his studio while he was working on the score and saw the mock-up of the opening scene when Data exposes the duck blind on the planet. And... You know, he he was interested in it. The effects were incomplete. So the agent asked him, you know, what's going on here? What's going on in the scene? And Goldsmith responded, I have no idea. But, you know, later in the movie, they have a gunfight. I can score one of them. That part isn't a quote. I'm filling in the story. Maybe that might explain it somewhat. If you have no idea what's going on in the film, you might lean more towards shorter bursts of music rather than long explorations. Well, the explorations come in the more... Placid scenes with the Baku theme and its limited appearances and the love theme, but yes, that that style does get de-emphasized a little bit. I think I think it's in First Contact a couple of times, but I know we disagree about that, and we can't, you know, play five minutes of music on the podcast and have us arguing over it. I'm not sure that's good radio. <laughs> yeah, we'll play a five-minute piece of music, and then that was good. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. So. I, th- I think we'll just have to leave our disagreement there and we might revisit it to an extent in Nemesis because, you know, we're going to be doing the Goldsmith retrospective. 
Is there anything else, uh, Scott, is there anything else you need to hit before we get out of here? I really enjoyed this movie. It's probably two on my list of next-gen movies behind First Contact. I don't really consider Generation a next-gen movie. It's kind of like a, like a hybrid. I thought the movie, the music was fine. I like the story. Scott, you really opened my eyes to the underutilization of Data uh, after kind of really playing around with him in, in Generations and First Contact. He becomes back to being like the generic show Data. But I enjoyed it. I think I liked um, uh, Picard's edgierness. I still think the Donna Murphy patting him on the head still makes me laugh out loud. But, <laughs> but uh, it's, I enjoyed it. I really did. It was fun. It, it, it had a nice, easy, flowing plot, and I, I highly recommend it among the Picard movies. I still have a lot of affection for Generations, even though in our podcast about it we identified some weak spots, which do exist. Like I said earlier, my memory of this movie, having not seen it for, I don't know, eight, nine years, was a lot better than the movie turned out to be when I revisited it this week. And so maybe I'm judging it a little harshly on that, but this time it just came across as bland and uninspired. My main problem with this movie is that I can see the potential in there for such a better movie. Yeah. Like, the ideas that it's built around could have been used so much better. That bit where Picard's yelling at the admirals, how many does it take before it becomes wrong? Yeah, we didn't That's even... such a good line. It's such a good concept. Mm. And, and this movie just didn't explore it to my satisfaction anyway. Yeah, we didn't even address that scene. But that is where the moral conflict and the intellectual conflict is most explicit. And that's mm -hmm. one of the most compelling scenes in the movie. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Even after Ruafo starts yelling and his forehead opens up. Yeah. <laughs> Creepy. I forgot how entertaining Ruafo was yelling no at various points in this film. Yes. But that's my main problem with the movie. It's not that the movie is necessarily bad. It's just that I can see how it could have been so much better. And it so it just comes across as a disappointment to me. Yeah, it, it's just... It has things that could have been good, but it's very deeply flawed. And we will track going into the next episode what the trend line is coming out of this movie. Oh, good lord. Yes, indeed. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with our podcast about Star Trek Nemesis. And we'll see how all these threads go. But first, let's get some plugs done. Uh, Scotty C., what do you have that you want the people to know about? Uh, well, obviously, continue uh, listening, if you do, to the Mothership Place B podcast. My PSC, Mr. Azero, and I just posted our Vintage Vault for WrestleMania 22, which was uh, a great episode. And uh, next week, we will be doing Backlash 2006. The newest episode of the Sports Evolution's up. And next week, after a month hiatus due to scheduling and stuff, will be the next episode of Main Event. Will be posted next. Will be next week as well. So check that out as well, and check out all our podcasts, including this great one and all the back episodes of this great show as well. Just go to the uh, the podcasts link on our site, placemination.com, and every podcast ever in the history of this uh, fine website is there. So uh, that's yes, what I got. Yes, you can find it on the website. You can find the feed on iTunes or yes. any number of applications and websites. Yep, absolutely. 
If you would like to contact me, I am Glenny Bunn on the Tumblr and on the Twitter. I've mentioned the last couple Star Trek episodes we did. We would like to do a Star Trek mailbag episode after all of the movies are done. So if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for that one, please get in touch. You can reach me. You can comment on the Place to Be Nation Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. uh, reach out to us. Touch us. Rub our bald heads. Sit in the bathtub. Scotty B, you are ghosting on the internet. No one can reach you. You do not want to be reached. If you need to get a message to me, I'm sure that Glenn will be able to find me. I usually can. I'm not exactly stealthy. <laughs> I, I often am. People often miss my presence. On that note, thank you, Scotty C, for being mm -hmm. with us today. It was an honor and a privilege. You guys are fantastic. Uh, I'd love to come back. Uh, we would love to have you back, and I think we'll uh, be discussing ideas later. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to us talk about this movie. Hopefully you'll be back, listen to all the other episodes. We will see you later. By the way, speaking of skin stretching,